let's take another sort of case study. Um, this is another one from my website uh, that I wanted to cover, and I think it's it's pretty important, and it's uh, it's pretty. Um, it's not very nice, okay? So I'll warn you about this in advance, that it's not very nice. And uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty horrific. Uh, and that is being attacked at night and often being physically and sometimes sexually assaulted by the jinn. And this is something that is un unfortunate or very sadly very, very, very common. And it happens to men and women. It doesn't just happen to women, it happens to both men and women. Some of the attacks are physical attacks, like just being shook, but it can get to the stage of, you know, like a really horrific sort of uh, attack that happens to some people. And it's very, very distressing for the patient. And I often find it's more distressing than some of the other bigger rukia problems because it feels like such a, you know, such a personal, like, violation of yourself and your space and your, you know, your body. And it's a horrible, horrible thing. Um, yeah, for sure, less men report attacks than, than, than women. But, you know, these attacks are almost always at night while lying in bed and almost always when there's nobody present in the room. They are not dreams. I'm not talking about dreams. Dreams I'll talk about in a minute. These are not dreams of, you know, like I had a dream of, you know, the shaitan doing something nasty to me. This is you wake up in the morning with bruising and bleeding and, you know, like this is something real that really genuinely happens to you. Uh, the victim is mostly awake and uh, pain and physical effects that are consistent with the same kind of attack from human beings are often present the following morning. However, some people, you know, um, some people can also experience this as part of a dream, but usually uh, this is usually something physical, but the advice works for both. Um, in terms of, you know, some people who say this can't happen, I think there's plenty of evidence in the Quran and the Sunnah that it can happen. Uh, from that is the statement of Allah No man, no jinni has had intimate relations with them. Uh, and that is at least somewhat of an evidence to say that this can happen. And we know from our experience that it can, it can absolutely happen. And we have this happen to a lot of patients. And it's a really, you know, it's not a, it's not a nice thing. It's a really horrible thing. And so something that we really need to, you know, find a solution to. Um, in terms of preventative measures, uh, there are general things you can do, and there are specific things that you can do. Obviously, general things that you can do, talk about, for example, a good rukia program, and, you know, going through the general rukia, there's no doubt. But specifically, what can you do to stop these attacks from taking place? And these are, you know, let's be honest, uh, things like rape, this is a psychological attack as much as it's physical. It's designed to completely ruin you and break you mentally. You know, because you just feel completely powerless, you feel like the shaitan has got complete control over you, and you just feel totally, utterly helpless, and it's a psychological attack as much as it is a physical attack. So, what do we recommend? Well, I, I came with eight steps, and I'm not saying that these are the only eight steps, but these are my eight steps that I have given to people and I've tried to develop a procedure that can stop these attacks from taking place the first one is removing anything from the house which attracts the shaitan including TV, pictures, music and the likes because at the end of the day if you're inviting the shaitan into your home then this is the first cause of the problem 
Number two, strictly performing the supplications and words of remembrance for the morning, afternoon, and going to sleep. So three key times during the day that you should be um, doing your morning, your adhkar, after Fajr, after Asr, and before you go to sleep. That is a minimum. The supplications which relate to overcoming an enemy. So if you feel like an attack is about to take place, or you feel the shaitan coming near to you, there are specific dua that you can make for overcoming an enemy. When an enemy is about to overpower you, there are specific duas that you can make, and remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is obviously a, uh, a major thing. Uh, number four, taking a rukia bath before going to sleep. So uh, we took this, the Rukia bath uh, details are on rukiasupport.com, which is a, another website of one of the, the brothers, Jazahullah Khairan, he put on there instructions for Rukia bath. I think I have a link to it on my website as well. So Rukia bath uh, before going to sleep. My experience is this helps. Um, you know, again, it's kind of just trying to do everything. And sometimes when you don't know what to do, the best thing is to do everything that you can and work onwards from there. Use rukia oil before going to sleep. Cover yourself in rukia oil. Make yourself, you know, like not appealing uh, to the shaitan. Waking up for the night prayer. Waking up for the night prayer. One of the things that I find really effective is to understand the mentality of the shaitan and the, the, what the shaitan is seeking to achieve when they attack you or they wake you at night or they shake you at night or they flip you upside down in your bed at night or whatever, they are trying to scare you and they're trying to obviously get you know eventually to you to leave Islam and all of these, achieve the magic and all this other stuff. One of the best ways I've found to combat this is whenever the shaitan does this to you at night or to a patient or whatever, you get up and you pray to Raka. Because when you get up and pray to Raka, what happens is the shaitan learns that there is a greater good coming out of this than the aim that the shaitan is trying to do. And they don't, definitely don't want to wake you up for the night prayer. So, you know, if you're going to shake me in bed and throw me out of the bed, then I'll be honest with you, if you're going to do that to me, I'm going to get up and pray. And that means Jazakallahu Khairan for waking me up for tahajjud. So that will stop. That is one of the most effective things we've found to stop the the like attacks happening while you're asleep at night even you know i'm mean, obviously the the intimate attacks are the worst but even when they you know stop you sort of shaking you waking you up at night and stuff the etiquettes of bad dreams and nightmares so following the proper etiquettes of bad dreams and nightmares are extremely important um i give always recommend the dreamers handbook by Muhammad al-jibari it's a very very good book very well written about etiquettes of dreams and nightmares and things like that and my number eight point is a little bit unsure, but I put it in there anyway. Having someone else in the room at night seems to reduce the number of attacks because it's, it's not very common that the worst attacks take place when other people are in the room. So generally, having someone else in the room may be of, uh, of benefit. Um, I have seen people still attacked when they're in the room with someone, but it just seems to be that the number is less. So these were my sort of points that I made for gin attacks at night. I mean, for most people, they will be minor, like being shook or being woken up or being feeling like you can't breathe. But you have to understand that for some people, we've got to speak about the reality of things. 
For some people, these gene attacks are really bad, and they are akin to the worst attacks that human beings do on other human beings. You know, they can be horrible. So when this happens to a patient, you have to give them a lot of support, a lot of help, especially because they can't go to the police, they can't go to some, you know, counseling service or whatever. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you can't go to a counseling service and say, I've been attacked and assaulted by an imaginary, you know, like thing that you can't see. They're not going to, they're not going to let you, you know, they're not going to give you any support for that. They're going to just refer you to a psychiatrist. So really, I would strongly emphasize that you need to be aware if this is happening. Don't push people for it. I don't tend to tell people too much about it, but I, you know, ultimately, I used to just leave it and not tell people, but now I think that you know, you've got to understand what's happening, and you've got to understand what can happen, and you've got to understand the means that people can get over it. Since I wrote that article, a lot of people contacted me and said to me, this was happening to me, and they've started implementing the things in the article, and you know, I'm, it's not perfect, definitely, you know, but like, I think it's the best that I know how to do. And I hope to add to it as I come up with other ideas and means that can stop these kind of attacks from happening, Closely related to that are frequent nightmares. What do you do if people are having frequent nightmares? Well, first of all, no doubt nightmares are from the shaitan. And there's no doubt that nightmares are from the shaitan, but it doesn't always mean that everyone who has nightmares will have a jinn problem as such. And I'm sure we all know that. So I've given them a few points. Uh, one of the first ones is again, clean the house out of anything that attracts the shaitan. The words of remembrance which protect you in the morning, afternoon, and before you go to sleep. The etiquettes of bad dreams and nightmares. Again, recommend the dreamer's handbook for just you know generally going through etiquettes of what to do when you have a nightmare and how to deal with it. And I also recommend the general protection, means of protection in how can I protect myself, closing the windows and doors at night. And the only rookie recommendation I have for people who are having frequent nightmares and they think it's a rookie issue is to start with the seven-day program because you're putting on the oil at night and that's generally more than enough to stop the nightmares uh, from happening. And I go through fre frequent nightmares is something I get, you know, like when I, especially when I've just treated someone for Rukia, you know, and especially if I haven't done all of my Azkar before I go to sleep, you know, I'll have like a horrible, horrible nightmare. My wife will have a horrible nightmare, you know, like, and you just know that, okay, that's just a reminder that do your Azkar, don't be lazy, put the oil on. And you know, I should know if I've had a bad Rukia session and I've had like a lot of like scratching and poking and, you know, just things going on, that generally before I go to sleep, I'll put rukia oil on before I go to sleep. Because at the end of the day, it's just easier than having a horrible night and then spending the whole of the next day angry and tetchy because you had a bad night's sleep. Okay. There was something about the house that I wanted to talk about particularly, that I thought was, was particularly important. And it's something that I call the fog of sihr. And what I mean by the fog of sihr is magic has a particular, and jinn being in the house, has a particular effect upon the house. One of the things that it does is it makes the environment in the house feel very, very, very down and depressed and sad and hopeless. And it becomes like a fog that clouds your judgments and your emotions. And that's why I never, ever, ever recommend for anyone to make serious decisions about their life when they're under the affliction of 
magic. For example, I never recommend for anyone to make a decision about divorce or marriage or, um, you know, like leaving the house or something like that. And that is an interesting topic. By the way, moving house doesn't always get rid of your gin problem. In fact, in many cases, it doesn't get rid of it. The gin just move with you. Um, no, I mean, really, it's not like humorous. They actually move with you. So that doesn't help. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, because a lot of people say, shall I move house? But one thing that happens to you is, as you spend longer around people who are afflicted by magic, either as a person doing Rukia, or either in yourself, or with your family, you find that your judgment becomes clouded, and you become like a fog is over your eyes, and you can't quite, you can't make effective decisions. And that's something to, to be aware of when it happens. Feel it when it happens, remove it with the remembrance of Allah. This is the meaning of the ayah. Indeed, those people who fear Allah, when they are touched by something from the shaitan that clouds their, their decision-making, they remember Allah, then they can see clearly. So when you remember Allah, and you, you, know, you say, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitanir Rajeem, and you recite something from the Qur'an, this fog clears away and you can see clearly, and you can, you can feel, you know, some people say, I go out of the house and I feel so much better. I go out of the house and I just feel great. I feel like a weight is lifted off my chest. I come back in the house and it's like pressure. And that is often because of this fog that is created by sihr which blocks your vision and you feel very down and very pressured and you feel like there's no hope and you start to despair and that person needs a lot of help to get over that and break it. First of all, you break it with the remembrance of Allah and then of course you break it with uh, you know, your ruqya and also by recognizing it and overcoming it, like realizing when it's happening to you and pushing yourself to, to overcome it. Uh, also in the house, which is one thing I wanted to make uh, very clear, is the value of what we call i'tiqad uh, to the shaitan. The value of what we call, or what our shaykh calls al-i'tiqad to the shaitan. Um, we're talking about things you get through your door, or you're sometimes given to put on the wall, that people believe cure you. They look like magic. I mean, they've got numbers and symbols, but they're not magic in the sense that they haven't been done for one person. They're not a contract between the jinn and the shape and the magician to stop you from getting baraka or to protect you or whatever. They are a generic thing that's printed in the, in the thousands and given out to people in order to weaken their iman and their trust in Allah. And these i'tiqad can be just as dangerous as a ta'weeth. So, you know, you get these little things like, you know, Sayyid so-and-so, you know, the, in the grave in this place, and he, you know, and he put this in your house for safety, and it's got a few charts on it, and it looks like magic. It's not magic in the sense that it hasn't been done for you to afflict your house. But what it does do is it opens the door for the shaitan. It's basically the get-in-free card that the shaitan uses to open the door to get into people's houses. So if you have any sort of weird symbols, numbers, ayatul kursi with some strange things at the bottom written to protect you or keep your house safe, get rid of them. Chili powder on the floor, black uh, cloth tied to the front of your car, some sort of CD hanging from your mirror that has something written on to keep you safe. This is what lets the shaitan in. Because it's the belief that these things keep you safe 
that loses the protection of Allah and takes the protection of Allah away from you because you stop relying on Allah, you start relying on these things and the fact that they contain shirk or bid'ah opens the door to the shaitan and it's really important you take them seriously even if they're not direct magic as in they're not, you know, you're not going to open it and find someone's you know, severed finger inside or something like that you're just going to find, you're just going to open it and find charts and circles and symbols pre-printed they are almost as dangerous as real sihr because first of all they're done through sihr second of all they weaken your trust in Allah and your link to Allah they contain shirk and they open the door for the shaitan so very very important to get rid of the um, these i'tiqad or these like sort of belief based amulets that are just basically there like pre-printed and they come through your door they you know give money to Sayyid so and so he will cure your problems and whatever and there's a little circle on the back with some funny things written in it it's really important to burn them just like you would burn a ta'weed okay I've got a couple more I'm getting towards the end of my uh, key topics before we go to Q&A and case studies inshallah I'm doing as best I can um, some people asked a question and I've got a list of questions here this is my list of questions that are frequently asked by lots of people and I haven't yet answered them one is people ask what's the difference really between jinn possession and magic and why are they so different and one of the things I wanted to talk about is the magical bond which makes it so different between the uh, the victim and the jinni that is causing the problem so magician goes to one of the leaders of the jinn sacrifices an animal makes a contract and that leader from the jinn sends you know a minion a little you know mini jinn to basically go and afflict that person they go inside of them and they afflict them what i wanted to highlight is with jinn possession the jinn enters of its own accord and leaves of its own accord there's no like prison cell that is holding them inside of the person with magic the best example I can give you, and this is not established in the Sunnah, this is only my opinion, uh, is that it's like being the jinni is inside of a prison cell. It's like the jinni is inside of a prison cell. The magic locks the jinni into the person. Now, I'm not saying the jinni can't leave, because they quite clearly can and do sometimes, but you definitely need to take two approaches. You attack the jinn, and you also weaken the bars that are holding the jinn within there. You know, you weaken the, the chains that are tying the jinn to that person. Because when magic is done, it's done. And it's tied to the person. DNA is used. Uh, hair is used. Nails are used. Blood is used. Photos are used. Um, you know, uh, clothing is used. And uh, all sorts of other things are used that tie the jinni into the person and I, I've come to believe it's not as simple as just you know like giving a dog a scent and saying go and find them like it's not like saying to the jinni look smell their you know like scent and go and get them I think it's more than that I think it's about locking the jinni inside of the body there's something about magic that has an element that's just so different from jinn possession because it's so much more difficult to get rid of and I don't know this is true, but I, I, my theory, to the best of my knowledge, based on what I've learned about magic and what I've learned from our shiuch, is that it seems to me that the jinni is somewhat locked inside of the body. And that the purpose of the magic is to tie 
the jinni in. Now, I don't know why they leave sometimes. Maybe sometimes the tying is not so strong. Maybe there's an option to swap. I, I don't know. Like that's, you know, Allah knows best. But it seems to me that in many cases, they're very much tied to the person. I'm not saying they can't leave. I haven't come to a conclusion on that. And I, I sometimes think they can leave of their own accord. But what I am saying is, it's not your regular jinni is in there, just get rid of it. You have to weaken the bond that has bound those two people. And a lot of magicians talk about it in terms of books and things, and of course they're not reliable, but you know, in terms of their own books when they're teaching their students, they talk about binding, you know, spellbound, making somebody bound, the jinni bound to the person. And I believe that you know, there is an element of needing to remove that binding. And at the end of the day, it's done through Rukia, so it's no change to what you actually do. But just be aware that magic is not the same as jinn possession, where you've got a jinni who's just attacked someone because they you know, uh, went to the bathroom or something like that without saying, A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan Rajeem, or whatever it is, um, or without saying, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-khubati wal-khaba'ith, or they poured hot water out of the window. That's very different from magic. Magic is much deeper and much more of a bond. The jinni is much less likely to leave. Some people say that it's not so much a bond as a threat. And that what happens is the jinn that are within the body are under threat of death if they leave. And that is a qawlun mu'tabar indi. I think it's got, a, it's got fihi waj. And it has a, a beneficial, it has a possibility of being true. That the jinn are surrounded by other jinn that force them or enforce them to fulfill the contract and that they are not able just to leave because they're under threat. Uh, but I still feel there's something more than just threat. I still feel myself that there is something of a bond that ties that jinni to that person and Allah knows best. But just to explain to you that magic has got something more of a, a third dimension to it. It's not two dimensional like jinn possession. It's got a depth to it. And that depth is either caused by threats to the jinni or it's either caused by it's either caused by threats or it's either caused by a magical sort of bond that binds them to the person um, or it's either caused by fear of the magician or lots of other reasons but at the end of the day it has a cause that's deeper than jinn possession what i now wanted to talk about is one of my major major topics uh, for the day um, as I'm just sort of concluding, trying to get up to Asr and trying to do Q&A uh, after Asr if we can or, and, and finish, inshallah. One of my major topics is if you were to ask me, Muhammad Tim, what, is, what makes a difference between advanced Rukia and just a, a regular person who knows how to do Rukia or, or does Rukia for themselves and their family? Or what kind of case is complex? Because people talk about, you know, people say to me like, this magic is very hard to break. And I, I don't agree with that because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Inna shaitani The plot of the shaitan is weak. So I don't agree there's any magic that's hard to break. But when is a case complex and when is it simple? And my answer to that is, a case is complex when it has multiple factors. And it's simple when it has a single factor. So, someone does magic on a person, one magician, one contract, one jinni, and the person becomes afflicted. This is a simple rukia case. It's easy. Trust me. 
even if there is more than one jinn, it's media of medium difficulty. And you have to get rid of one and then the other and then the other and then the other, but you know, it's not massively difficult. Where I see Rukia is really hard is where you have multiple problems overlapping. And I'll give you a couple of case studies to illustrate those multiple problems. Sister came um, and we took some history from her and it seems that she was afflicted by magic before she married. After that, her parents went to a ma another magician to remove the magic that was done to her and uh, therefore she received magic from the other magician. She was at some point wearing da'wiz from another magician. Um, she almost certainly was suffering from jinn possession that had nothing to do with magic, which was also because apparently what she had said is she said, I saw them and they, we passed by a group of the jinn and I heard them and I saw them because she was badly afflicted. And she said, I heard them saying, come on, join in, join in, come on and join. And she said, I felt them coming into me. And basically I got more jinn on top of this problem. And then her parents had done istikhara for her marriage, i.e. phone istikhara, i.e. magic. Phone istikhara, there's another way of saying that. We call it magic. And basically it's where you phone up someone and say, do istikhara for me. And basically what they do is magic instead of istikhara. Um, and basically she had had that done uh, and then there was a holy man who had sent his soul I know you did hear me right he sent his soul of course he didn't send his soul he probably sent his shayateen but you know in his words he's such a holy man he took his soul out of his own body and sent it to the home to investigate what was happening in the home and to take some steps to cure the problem. That was there. He sent his soul, so that shaitan was there. She almost certainly was suffering from the evil eye uh, as well. And probably Ainul Jinn and probably you name it, Yani, like the whole case across the board. And it doesn't have to be that complicated, but it can be complex when someone comes to you and it looks like the evil eye and then you realize it's magic but then you kind of go back on yourself and you realize actually it's probably both because they have symptoms of the evil eye and they have symptoms of magic and it may well be both at the same time. Now, again, I'm not going to tell you too many different things to do. I don't think you need to change your rukia. You might need to do a bit more rukia, but you definitely need to change your expectations and your treatment to be more holistic and to bear in mind that just because you see magic there doesn't mean that magic is the only thing that's there. And sometimes what happens is one of the jinn leaves, the magic contract is broken, you feel, you know, like on top of the world, you're so thankful to Allah, alhamdulillah, it's over. And the next day she's back again. And some people will say it's repeat magic. But what really is, is that magic was not the only problem. There was magic from one, magic from another, magic from another, a jinn from another, the evil eye, maybe even some of the scholars say the jinn giving you the evil eye, which is again open to debate, but some of our scholars used to say that the jinn can give the evil eye, and you got everything mixed into one big pot. And that is much, much harder to manage, to deal with, and most importantly, to, to handle from the patient's point of view. Because every time you're getting a victory, you've got, you know, 50 things left to get rid of. And that's why, you know, you end up saying like, the person ends up saying, look, you know, I'm just getting worse. I get better, I get worse. And, and I asked our Sheikh Adil, I said to him, Sheikh, is there such a thing as repeat magic? 
and he said, mustahil, it's impossible, it doesn't exist. Now, I'm not sure I entirely agree with that, but I would not say mustahil, I would say nadir, it's extremely rare. I think it could happen, if you have a relative who's a magician, they might do magic to you twice, but most times it's not repeat magic. What it is, is multiple causes of a problem within the same person. Multiple jinn, multiple causes, sometimes multiple magicians. Every time you've been to a faith healer to cure you, he sent a jinn, and you've got a massive jinn party just going on inside of you. And that takes a lot of unraveling. What I suggest is that you unravel it piece by piece. And even more complex than that, and the one that I consider to be the most complex, is when you have the same thing, but not in one person, in a whole family. And I consider this to be the most complex kind of sihr. You have a whole family who has all sorts of problems. One has got the evil eye, one has got magic. They've been to so many faith healers and beer and whatever. They've given them ta'weed, they've got this, they've got that. And you just go in and it's like looking at the after effects of an explosion. The room is just blown apart, the people are just, every one of them has a different problem, and you sat there thinking, where do I start? So what you have to do is, you have to start by unraveling, it's like having a massive knotted ball of wool. You know like when you have a string and it's all tied inside, or a wire, and it's all wrapped inside of itself, and tied inside, and you have to slowly open it, bit by bit, and lay it out straight. So the first thing you need to be looking at is, Let's get the Rukia started. If it's multiple people, you need to ask yourself, big decision, do I read on all of them together or do I target one of them specifically or do I do a mix of both? And that's a tough decision to make. I'm not sure I have a perfect answer for that. I tend to play it by ear, but I would say that um, if it is a family with lots of people affected, you, you want ideally your aim is to get one person better by the permission of Allah so that they can become a springboard to the next person. And they can become a springboard to the next person. Uh, and you have to pick your battles with the shaitan in these cases. You can't just say, you know, I'm one soldier fighting a war and I'm just going to run into the army and just fling my sword around and eventually hope that I'll win. You have to be tactical. You have to ask yourself, okay, which person is it going to be better for me to give more attention to it? And it's not saying you can't do, you can do a Rukia session once a week for the whole family, and then you can do individual Rukia sessions on particular people. If you see one person is naturally less affected, which I think you will see, families are rarely affected all the same in one go. One person's a bit better, give the focus to them, try and get them you know, in a stage where they're a little bit better, and use them as a springboard. But there's another thing that often happens, they either become a springboard or they become a magnet. And what I mean by them becoming a magnet is they start drawing in the jinn from the other people in the family. So what happens is you're treating this person who you think is you know, your priority, you're giving them a bit more time and attention, and what's happening is the jinn from them is going and the jinn from one of the other family members takes its place because they're desperate now and they know that you're putting attention and this person becomes like a magnet for all the problems in the house which is quite a convenient way of dealing with it because you can read on that person and you're seeing everyone in the house getting better now again you know take this with a pinch of salt because this is my experience this is not you know i'm just talking to you about what i think 
but I definitely do. I definitely have experienced that sometimes when you pick one person and read, they become the whole problem, and it you know it dumps onto them. Sometimes you pick the worst person in the house because you think if I can help this person, who's the worst person in the house, be ibnillah, the rest of them will get the energy and the you know the ability to be able to sort of you know help themselves or do self rukia. And you need to really be tactical. There's no one way I can give you that I will say this always works. Always read on one, but be careful reading on a jama'ah. First of all, when you read on a large group of people, the legend of Daima and others have fatawa against doing it. That's the first thing. Second thing is, when you read on large numbers of people, you'll find the shaitan tends to play between them. So, you know, one will start laughing, the other one will throw something off somebody, one of them will pick up a pen and throw it at the other person, one of them will, you know, start floating in the air, you'll go over to that person, get them down the ground, the other one starts, and they just mess around with you. You know, like they play with you and they distract you. So if you are going to do it on a group, don't be distracted, don't let them just distract you, you have to kind of focus on one. And you don't really want the shaitan altogether where they can kind of give each other moral support. You kind of want to, you know, isolate them as best you can. But having said that, there are many cases where you just can't do it. You can't isolate them because you're one person and there's nine people in the family. I had one case, I think we had either seven or nine people in the family. All of them have major reactions, badly affected. What can you do? You can't just, you know, say, I'll read on you and then you and then you and then nine years later, you guys, inshallah, will be okay. You've got to, you know, you've got no choice but to read on them together. But they give us a hard time. One of the shayateen starts reading the adhan. One of them starts reading Quran. The other one starts giggling. Hi, look, he's reading Quran. You're not doing anything. Your rookie is rubbish. And then like one, and they're all shouting at each other and making fun of each other. It's really hard to maintain your focus in that environment. If they do start reading Quran or reading Adhan, two things I would recommend you do. First of all, don't stop your rukia. Second of all, challenge them and ask them to leave. And if they are Muslim, you know, tell them, you know, if you're Muslim, fear Allah. You know this is haram for you. Read for them Surah Al-Jinn or whatever that you give them some warning or Surah Al-Safat where you give them some warning about what is going to happen to them if they don't stop this kind of evil that they're doing. But you know, at the end of the day, don't get too distracted by it. If they're reading Quran, read Quran back. You know, inshallah, let them read with you. No problem, inshallah. They're doing it to, to, to disturb you mentally, to make you lose your rhythm and lose your ruqya and feel like, oh, I'm not doing it right. How can the shaitan be reading Quran back to me? And what you need to do is just carry on, focus, don't let them distract you. Every now and again, you might want to challenge them, fear Allah, leave. You might want to read something that might inspire them to leave, like Surah Al-Safat, Surah Al-Jinn, where they have ayat which talk to the jinn and about the jinn, about the evils if they disobey Allah. That might be something worth saying and translating. But, you know, this is just, a, you really, you're going back to your ruqya, you're focusing on your ruqya, and don't let them... Uh, distract you but these cases are really tough and I really wanted to you know get you guys to understand how to deal with these cases if you try and deal with everything at once you become overwhelmed you become drowned you don't know what to do you get very sad very despondent the fog comes over and you can't see anything and you're just like I'm never gonna get out of this problem what, a lot of tactics you can start reading on the whole family and then pick on people as you're reading on the whole family you start seeing that this brother is getting better Right, I'm going to give him an extra session of Rukia a week or an, or an extra session of Rukia a day. I'm going to really focus on him. Inshallah, he gets better. He becomes like an assistant pushing the Rukia, you know, for the rest of the family. Or he becomes like a magnet where the rest of the family is getting better and he's just getting, you know, jinni after jinni coming into him.
we can deal with that also. So you basically have to deal with it in a very tactical way. You have to be very patient and don't, you know, again, we come back to not having this idea of a fixed problem. It's magic, nothing else. You can get magic, you can get the evil eye there as well. You can get people with multiple afflictions where everything, and if you listen to their case history, it'll soon become clear. You know, I went to a magician, then I got a ta'weed, I had jinn possession, then I went to this guy, then I went to this one, then I went to this one. I've got this ta'weed, and you know, when they take out a bag of ta'weed and they say each one is from a different person, you know that you're dealing with lots of problems from lots of people, and you need to take it slowly. Don't despair, and don't get too happy when one of them leaves, because you know, one of them leaves and the person's like, I'm cured because they feel so much better. And you're like, Alhamdulillah. And then you see basically that the person is actually still got something remaining within them. And that's when I talk about how do I know if my treatment is complete? I've mentioned that on the blog. And I mentioned that I would say my standard for treatment being complete is one month of intensive ruqya with no symptoms at all. That is my standard. So the day the jinni leaves is the day I start my one month countdown. And I do this because I've been burnt too many times by doing the opposite. The jinni leaves, get all excited. The jinni's gone, alhamdulillah. Yalla, you know, let's go and celebrate. Fadra min Allah, sajid shukr, everything is great. And then what you realize is that actually you've just removed one problem with the help of Allah and there are others remaining or the person, the jinni comes back or whatever it is. So my kind of standard is from the day you think they are cured, recite upon them for one month or put them to recite on themselves for one month full rukia program 45 minutes a day roughly and what that will do is to just make sure that there are no symptoms and if any symptom is left don't stop don't start the, like you have to stop the timer and start again so if they say look i'm alhamdulillah i'm totally better just i get a slight twitch in my eye when i read the quran we haven't started our month yet back to rukia again until the twitch in the eye goes then one month of no symptoms, and I give them your clear. Maybe that's strict, maybe it's too strict. I know a lot of pe people don't do that, but for me, I feel that that has saved me by the grace of Allah many times from telling someone they're better and then realizing that they're actually not better. And a lot of people will say, I got cured and then I got sick. I got cured and I got sick. And what they really mean is they got partially cured and then they realized they were still sick. And that's what usually happens, and I've got an article on that uh, on the, the blog on the website as well, inshallah. While we're talking about the family and the, uh, the home, one of the things I did also want to uh, talk about is the role of women in Rukia. And I have mentioned this before. Um, for the sisters, what is the role of women in Rukia? Uh, first of all, I don't see... Uh, there, are, there are two, or let's say there are two uh, conflicting principles, okay? Two conflicting principles which give us a problem when it comes to women in Rukia. The first is qiyas uh, al-jihad, making qiyas upon al-jihad fi sabilillah. And the Prophet was asked, hal al-nisa'i jihad? He said, the jihad is al-hajj wal-umrah. So this is one aspect. On the other side, you have the fact that there's no specific text prohibiting them from doing ruqya. And Aisha radiallahu anha used to do ruqya upon the Prophet sallallahu albeit for medical issues rather than jinn issues. So where do we find the balance? I actually don't think there's any contradiction. I think there's an element that I don't recommend them to do, and there's an element that I do recommend them to do. The element that I don't recommend them to do 
is to go out for the sake of Ruqya from house to house uh, as a Raqiya, if that's the right word, as a sister who is doing Ruqya with services available to everybody and let me just go from house to house and you know just walk into a situation I don't know what's there and just do Ruqya for people. I don't recommend that. Uh, for First of all, Qiyasan al-Jihad fi sabilillah, because we know that Ruqya is similar to al-Jihad fi sabilillah in many aspects. You're fighting against the shaitan, you're putting yourself in physical danger, and there are elements of that you wouldn't want to do. But the greatest danger is, are those times when you're not in your own environment. You walk into someone's house, you don't know what's there, there's some you know, person there who you know, goals for you, that's when the greatest problem is. And you know, the Prophet Allah said to the women, stay in your homes. So I think that on balance, it's that aspect of Rukia that I don't recommend them to do. That kind of, I'm a Raqi, you know, come to me for anything, bring anyone to me and I'll go to anyone. That's the kind of one that I don't recommend them to do. What I do recommend them to do is A, personal Rukia for themselves, be Ruqya within their families, like Aisha did to the Prophet And Ruqya, let's say, on a personal level, if there's a sister who's a friend of theirs, and they, they, you know, they know that this mahbur, these, these evils are not present, uh, the area is safe and whatever, then I think that is also there as well. There is one thing in the middle that is kind of a middle ground that I do recommend, and that is that we always need sisters to help out sisters who don't have a mahram. So to, to accompany a sister for Rukia who doesn't have a mahram because she needs another sister to come with her and this is inshallah for, because of the haja, the need or the darura and not because we think that it's a great idea to go from house to house. So I'll kind of summarize that and I, I don't know, I hope that is a fair summary of the topic. I really hope and pray to Allah that that is a fair summary of the topic which takes into account all of the statements of the scholars and doesn't leave you with any contradiction. That you don't go out as a, you know, here I am, I do Rukia for people, let me just see anyone and go to anyone. Uh, at the same time, you do Rukia for yourself, your family, your children within the home, and, you know, close friends. And in the middle, you can go out from place to place if you are going as a support, as a, you know, as somebody to help a sister who doesn't have a mahram. And that is because of the haja and the need that we have of uh, the sister to have someone with her and having a sister with her who can touch her, who can fix her hijab. That has been, you know, invaluable to me. I've, I've always had uh, sisters who have helped in my Rukia cases. If I have a sister, she says, I don't have a mahram. Then what I will say to that sister is bring another reliable sister with you or I will reach out to one of the sisters who we know and ask her to come. Again, you know, like we said before, mentioned in the other Rukia session, you know, you don't really want a trial, you don't want a fitna, you want really a sister who's maybe an older sister, who covers very well, who is very, um, you know, very, subhanAllah, what's the word, very, very um, reliable and, 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 you know, sort of solid and patient. And someone who's just going to sit with the sister, take care of her hijab, you know, I literally put myself under the command of that assistant sister. If she tells me turn away, I turn away. Because sometimes she'll say to me, turn away, hijab came off. So she'll say, turn around. So I just straight away in the Rukia session, turn around, and I know that she's fixing a hijab or whatever, and she will say, you can turn back now. So she's kind of managing the session for that sister who doesn't have a mahram for whatever reason. 
And that's, you know, that's what I've found to be the best practice. So I've found that that is kind of a balance between the scholars who say don't do it because women don't do jihad, and the scholars who said that do it because Aisha did it for the Prophet I think this is the balance. Focus it within the home, within the family, uh, and um, you know, many women have to do that, they have no choice. Uh, and maybe limit the kind of public rocky type job um, and you know in instead of that look at being a someone who is like an assistant rocky or a helper who comes and takes care of the ladies make sure that they're covered and so on and so forth um, and uh, you know basically takes care of things I think that's a balance I'm not gonna say it's a hukum it's not my it's not a fatwa that I'm saying to you it's haram for you to do anything else because at the end of the day it's not my it's not my level to give such a fatwa it's only my attempt to uh, balance the evidences in a way that gives an opportunity but doesn't put the sister in a situation where she might compromise herself and her hijab and her modesty and other you know elements of that so I think that's kind of my take on uh, sisters and uh, and Rukia. Uh, I think the rest of those can be left to Q&A. The, there is something that I, I really wanted to cover now, just in the last sort of five, ten minutes, and we're going to literally, after, after Salah, we're just going to focus ourselves, ta'ala, on Q&A from you guys, and Q&A from here, and whatever questions I have left over from here. Um, people ask a lot about prophetic medicine. And uh, the first thing I want to tell you about prophetic medicine is, prophetic medicine is a science in of itself. It some, sits somewhere between Rukia and medicine. So if you already have a medical background, you're a physician, a doctor, or a medical professional, you may find you already have many of the tools to use prophetic medicine effectively. If you're a Iraqi or you're trained in Rukia, you may well have many of the tools that are used to, you know, for prophetic medicine, because what you find with prophetic medicine is it's the middle point between conventional medicine and Rukia. Why do I say it's the middle point? Because, the reason I say it's the middle point is because it has an element of medicine in it and it has an element of Rukia or Iman in it. Uh, the element of Iman is your trust in Allah, which of course you have regular medicine, but your, you know, your trust in what the Prophet advised as a medicine and your belief in what he prescribed. And you know your tawakkul in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in, in following that procedure. And you, you fact you're taking it from Islam and not from a doctor. On the other side, it has a medical aspect because these things like Sidr and Senna and uh, you know, black seed have a medical cause and a medical process through which they work. And so there is an overlap between conventional medicine and between Rukia, and that's where prophetic medicine kind of sits in the middle. And I always recommend people to use prophetic medicine to assist their Rukia with it. What I want to warn you against is making prophetic medicine your only Rukia. Some people do this. So their only Rukia is prophetic medicine. Like, look, anyone who comes to me, take this Siddhar, take this Senna, take this Black Seed, take this Honey, Bismillah. And that's not what we do. For us, Rukia is a treatment in of itself, and prophetic medicine is something that if you use it in the right way, you can facilitate a faster treatment, inshallah, than if you 
rely upon, uh, you know, just for example, recitation alone, because you're just taking care of more of the asbab, more of the causes for success. You know, Allah has put the cure in medicine, in prophetic medicine and in ruqya. So take all of them, take a cure from all of them. So prophetic medicine is a science in of itself. I was blessed to meet a, uh, a family um, uh, from South Africa and uh, the, 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 uh, the lady, the, the, um, if you like, the, the mother of that, that family was an expert and is an expert, hafizahullah, in prophetic medicine. And I benefited immensely from that family. They've helped me so much to understand prophetic medicine in a way that is better than I understood it before. I still think I have a lot to learn. It's one of my weaker areas, but I, um, I've learned a lot from them and a lot about, and prophetic medicine is, is almost a lost science, you know, like that so much of us now, we've kind of been like, look, conventional medicine, Rukia, and we've kind of lost this little bit in the middle of all of these treatments that the Prophet himself recommended. And of course, the seven day program is a part of that because the zamzam water and the olive oil, especially the olive, the use of olive and the use of black seed and honey is a part of prophetic medicine as well as being a part of Rukia, so the seven-day program is kind of a, an overlap. And that's why Sheikh Adil, who, who wrote the seven-day program, calls his seven-day program Al-Ashfiya. Ashfiya is the plural of Shifa, meaning it's not one Shifa. It's Shifa and Shifa and Shifa and Shifa. Olive oil, Shifa. Zamzam water, Shifa. Honey, Shifa. Black seed, Shifa. Rukia, Shifa. All together, Ashfiya. Cures. So, that's one thing. But just generally being aware of some basic prophetic medicine tips that you can use, I will just give you a few. Um, I recommend that you have a little look on the um, psoriasis, eczema, and prophetic medicine post I have on my blog. Uh, it's basically um, uh, some suggestions from uh, this particular sister and a sister in Canada who recommended for me two prophetic medicine cures for eczema. And this eczema could be gin-related or evil eye-related, and it could also be medically related as well. And um, it's, it is a very nice, you know, use of henna leaf, black seed powder, senna leaf, costus, uh, cider, uh, Himalayan salt, uh, hyssop powder, olive oil, honey, coconut milk, Epsom salts, uh, apple cider vinegar, saffron. You know, there's a lot of like benefits herbs and treatments and medicines within that particular thing. So have a look at the blog post for an idea of it. But just to give you an idea and run through some of the most common. So when we're dealing with jinn, magic, rukia, evil eye, and I'm gonna break in just a couple of minutes. We'll go, we're not gonna delay, inshallah. We'll go straight for the, for the salah, ta'ala. Um, one of the things that is really useful is sidr. And sidr is a, a leaf, it, it grows natively here in the UAE. Um, and the fresh leaves are good. You can get it in dried form as well and in powder form. And what we generally tend to tell people to do with Siddur is to put seven leaves in the bath and bathe in it or to put seven leaves in Rukia water and drink it. And Siddur has a particular effect or a particular benefit to, um, you know, things like uh, people who are afflicted by magic. And it was recommended by Sheikh Mubaz rahimahullah ta'ala uh, and others. So, you know, it's a medicine. And don't let anyone say it's not mentioned in the sunnah. It's a medicine. It's not a rukia or a, a, a sunnah or something like that. It's a medicine. It's been found to help people medically who have the problem of sihr, where we're talking about this overlap, this gray area. It's not quite medicine and not quite, not quite rukia. You know, this gray area of 
Siddur, taking some Siddur leaves, seven Siddur leaves, putting them in the water, stirring them and you know drinking some of it and pouring some of the water into the bath and then bathing in it with a rukia bath and you can add other things in there another uh, one that's very useful is senna and senna is the same stuff you get in those tablets for constipation that you get to help loosen your bowels and it does loosen your bowels so you gotta be a bit careful about taking too much of it uh, what i tend to do with senna is roughly and i'm again I am not a doctor, okay? So don't take this from me as a prescription, right? But just generally, I tend to do it three days a month in a row. If the person has bloating, stomach problems, constipation that are coming from the gin or magic and they're getting like, you know, like vomiting and stuff like that, we sometimes give it to them three days in a row in, in the month, not more than three days. We give them about a pinch, like a pinch in the hand in a in a cup of hot water. So what we do is, generally, I take a cup of water, pour it into a pan, take a pinch of senna, pour it into the pan, boil it, and leave it overnight. So it's boiled, switch the gas off, leave it overnight. Okay? So what I did is take a cup full of water, or two cups about, put it into a pan, boil the water, put a pinch of senna leaves in there. I use the leaves, I don't use the powder, uh, but um, perhaps you could, I use the leaves. Um, let it sort of steam in there like tea, switch it off and leave it to infuse overnight. In the morning at Fajr time, fish out the leaves, pour the uh, liquid, which looks like tea now, it looks like tea color, like green tea, pour it, or brown tea, pour it into uh, a cup and heat it up again in the microwave to make it a bit warmer, because it's not nice cold, and drink it warm, inshallah. I found doing that three days in the month uh, three consecutive days in a month is helpful to get rid of some of the effects of the shaitan from the inside. But I don't use it for everybody. You know, one, one thing I've changed with is when I first started Rukia, you know, I used to give Senna to everybody and Siddur to everybody and Costas to everybody and all the rest. Now I'm a little bit different. Now I'm kind of more reluctant to give it. And I only give it if I'm really sure that I think it'll benefit them. Because again, like, you know, when you start getting into the medicine side, every medicine has a side effect. And, you know, you're getting away from Rukia that, you know, you have to be careful. The person's not going to get a side effect and get sick, or there's not some contraindication or some medical reason why they can't have it. So I tend to be a little bit reluctant. I tend to sort of, you know, just be careful with it. I'm not kind of like here. There's some costas and Yemeni powder, and there's some, you know, here, and there's some Siddur and Senna, and take all of them at once. I tend to be kind of like, when I've done Rukia for a while, and I can see they're really struggling with this, like, problem in the stomach, or in the lower, you know, in the, in the um, sort of, uh, you know, lower GI tract or whatever, then we give them some of this Senna in a light dose that won't cause a problem for anybody, and usually this helps to, to bring it out. Uh, one thing that I would definitely recommend is, of course, olive oil. I've already mentioned that. And one thing, black seed. Uh, and I find black seed best taken in seed form, whole seed form. That's the Kalonji, the whole black seed form. I find it better like that. Uh, however, there are times, and again, you know, the people who are experts, they know when to use it as a powder, when to use it as a seed. I tend to use it as a seed. But externally, uh, I tend to use it as an oil. I don't put it over the whole body, but if there's an area where there's like a lump or a problem or like a lesion that has come from the shaitan or, or a cut or a scratch when you get people appearing with scratches all over their body, black seed oil 
on there is really useful. If you do ingest black seed oil, make sure that it is food safe. A lot of it isn't. A lot of it is not hygienic. It's not safe to ingest. It's for external use only. If you do ingest black seed oil, you have to get really good quality oil that says for human consumption. You have to make sure that it hasn't been mixed with some dirty stuff in a machine. Yeah? Otherwise, you're going to make yourself more sick. Uh, honey, definitely use honey both externally and internally. It works brilliantly externally as well putting it over, you know, over things on the skin, cuts, lesions, honey works very, very well on that. In fact, it's used by, I'm, I'm told it's used by some armies as an emergency, like uh, I'm sure now they use chemicals and things, but it, at some point it was used for emergency sort of field medicine when you have a big gash, that they would pour honey on it because first of all, it has big antibacterial sort of action and also it it sort of covers the wound and heals it up. So, I mean, these kind of basic things you can learn from sort of herbal websites and just, you know, don't do anything too radical. Like don't, you know, give like a bottle of honey to a diabetic or something, you know, don't do anything too radical. But within the limits of what's sensible, if someone has a, you know, a gash on their hand, I don't think it will cause them, be easily like they have no allergy to honey, it won't cause them any harm to put some on. And uh, one of the, you know, last couple I will, I will talk about, inshallah, um, as, as Costas. So Costas comes in two forms. Marine costus, which is kind of white or light, very, very pale color, like sand color or paler than sand. It's very, very pale color, uh, marine costus. And Indian costus or al-qust, al-qust or al-qust al-hindi, Indian costus, which tends to be quite dark red or brown. You can get them in herbal stores, and I'm told you can get them very, very cheap at Ajman Flour Mill or something like that. Um, some, someone went there and found they had black seed powder, senna powder, cedar powder, and costas and the whole lot in this. I don't know the name of the flour mill, but it was a flour mill in Ajman. It was a really big one. Um, maybe. Hashim flour mill. Okay, there it all. So, inshallah, this one has like all sorts of different like things there, and it had like black seed powder, senna powder, cedar powder, whatever. Costas, uh, we tend to make, uh, one of the things we use it for in a basic way is mix it with a little bit of oil and use it as a nose drop. Um, it stings like nothing else, yeah? It really, I've put it in my own nose, it really stings. But it's an excellent, excellent way of waking people up when they suffer from like either falling asleep or either the gin overcoming them and getting them back to their senses is just a little bit of costus diluted and just a couple of costus nose drops. And some people sell costus oil that's pre-made, but you can make it yourself according to the recipe. Last one that I will mention, inshallah ta'ala, is the use of misc. Uh, a lot of people in Rukia, you want a way to wake people up. We told you don't let people go to sleep. So they start going to sleep, 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 sleep. Yeah, you want to keep them awake. Now you could use smelling salts, but they smell horrible. And I'm sure they must bring the shaitan because they smell filthy. So you don't want to use them. So what you can use is these blocks of soapy misc. So it's like a red, I mean, you get them everywhere in Saudi. You get them everywhere in Pakistan, India. They're like a block of red or orange misc and it's like flaky it's kind of like soapy in nature um and I, I still have never no one ever tells what they call everyone just calls them blocks of misc and they have different names wherever you go but they're a square block about and no not maybe about three quarters of an inch by like or maybe like you know i don't know two centimeters by one centimeter something like this like a little block of soapy red or yellow misc and it comes off like wax like and it smells of misc when you smell it and taking some of that off and either just putting it gently inside of the person's nose or around the person's nostril, they will not sleep for a long time, or just waving it under their nostril when they go to sleep. The gin just go, 
wake up straight away, you know, and the person gets back to normal. So that's something else. These are just basic things. I mean, I haven't told you anything secret. I've just told you some basic things because not my area of expertise, but you can develop your knowledge in this through people who are experts in the field and who do know what they're doing. And I do post these on my website. I have psoriasis, eczema, and prophetic medicine. I have one on truffle water, used making truffles. I'm not going to sell that one to you now because it's just really expensive. Truffles are hugely expensive, but using truffle water uh, for evil eye and uh, magic in the stomach and what you can do to you know, push the magic out of the stomach using black seed, senna, rhubarb, powder, and cumin. Uh, I have all of those on the website, inshallah. So please do have a read of them, get inspired, read on herbal medicine, and then someone come and teach me more because I'd love to learn more about this, but this is just a topic, inshallah. In this last part of the session, uh, I'm gonna focus primarily upon questions and answers uh, from our physical audience, our online audience, and insha'Allah ta'ala, uh, from questions that I've prepared that I haven't yet answered. Um, some of the people were, were just sort of asking questions around the topic of uh, prophetic medicine and whether there are any sort of limits and things in it. Uh, I think that there is a methodology you should have. I think number one, start simple. Start simple with prophetic medicine. Don't try and reach too far, making like weird concoctions that might make people ill. Number two, be cautious. So a brother came and asked me, what about taking senna during pregnancy? My response, ask a doctor, inshallah. Don't take from me when I end up telling you, yeah, yeah, you can take senna, it's fine, and it ends up being causing some harm. You know, there, there is an overlap with medicine. Where it's an overlap with rukia, I know about it. Where it's an overlap with medicine, ask a, a doctor, preferably a practicing Muslim doctor, who can give you some more detailed advice about when you can and when you can't take that kind of medicine. Um, uh, also, I, I neglected to mention a lot of things, but one of them was dates. Um, some people are asking about dates and um, how, to, how to take dates. And I personally think that dates are really hard to take seven dates in the morning every day forever. So I kind of see it that you take dates when you think you're at risk. That's how I do it. You take dates when you think that you are at risk. So for example, someone says, I'm visiting my in-law's house and my mother-in-law is a known magician. I would take that with a pinch of salt because people never really like their mother-in-law. But anyways, they say that my mother-in-law is a known magician and what should I do? I will often at that point say, take your seven dates in the morning or if you feel like you're coming down with something, take your seven dates. But I don't think it's something that you can do uh, for your whole life every day forever because dates are just it's not our staple food anymore that we just always have them in the house and we can take seven dates in the morning and especially Ajwa dates and especially Ajwa dates from Aliya to Medina that it really does need some it needs to be sort of balanced so you can't do everything all the time you can obviously do your adhkar every morning and the dates I would kind of use at times when you think you are at, of, or at a greater uh, risk uh, one of the brothers also mentioned a very, very good point regarding dreams. And he said, that you, you know, you spoke about nightmares, but we haven't also spoken about mubashirat uh, or good dreams that tell you the solution to the problem. Uh, I think dreams is going to be a whole different topic, inshallah. I'd love the next session, inshallah ta'ala, or the next workshop 
perhaps to be on Dreams. It would be amazing. Uh, I'm not. Um, I'm. I'm. I'm learning a lot about Dreams, and theoretically, I know a bit about them. But I'm still learning a lot, and I'm still, you know, I'm still kind of getting to grips with that. And the danger, I, I replied, you know, danger. I'm concerned with you guys. Is the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal with regard to Yusuf, Qudi al-Amr al-Ladi fihi testafdiyan. The matter that you have sought a fatwa about has been decreed. So seeking an answer for what a dream means is seeking a fatwa. And some of the scholars said with regard to this that you know this is from this should be done by the person who is a qualified person to give a fatwa. You know because it's a serious issue what you read into a dream and you can read the wrong thing. But what I will say just because I think the brother raised a very valid point is what I would say is. At your level now, don't read lots into dreams. Where every time you see something in a dream, you dig up your back garden again. At the same time, be aware that dreams can give you solutions to your problems if they're interpreted in the right way. And I don't think I'm I'm the right person to do that, but. You know, maybe I can give you some detail on dreams in another workshop in terms of tips and information, uh, which, inshallah, you you should you know I hope benefit from uh, greatly. And I think the Dreamers Handbook by Muhammad Al Jibari is a fantastic book on the topic of dreams and dream interpretation. Uh, it's an excellent book, so I would highly recommend that. Um, one thing that I thought I should do before we get into the questions, and I'm going to be a little bit selfish and start with my questions that I have that I haven't answered yet, um, because these are the most commonly asked questions across the board, and then go into your questions, and then go into the online questions. But very quickly, some people wanted me to talk to you through destroying a ta'weez. First of all, I highly recommend to you guys the ta'weez project. That's T-A-W-E-E-Z project, and I'm sure it's .com. Um, very, very good project dedicated by some brothers to removing the misconceptions around ta'weez, what they contain, and helping people to destroy them. But I have a very full and detailed explanation of how to remove a ta'weez, and I'll just summarize it for you. Uh, this is from Sheikh Adil Muqbil, who obviously does this pretty much every day, all the time, you know, for, and, and he trains people in the hayah to do it. But I've added some points from myself where I think that maybe the Sheikh, you know, like, if you've seen the Sheikh's videos of him, like, you know, like, just handling all of these substances and, like, sticking pins through his gloves and things. Like, I've added some sort of things, like, for safety and, you know, like, kind of best practice in there as well. So you'll need the following equipment to destroy a ta'weez. Ideally, you need some sort of tray so that everything sticks together. At a pinch, you can use a big piece of paper and just keep everything in the paper. But I personally like to have, you know, so, uh, a, a sufra works very well, um, or a tray, or something where you can just pick everything up and get rid of it. You know, like where all your bits stay in one place. Uh, I'd recommend a long neck gas lighter. That is not the cigarette lighters that burn your fingers, but the long ones with a very, very long neck that you can stay well away from the flame using. Um, and uh, you know the kind used for lighting gas ovens and barbecues, and a suitable container for burning the ta'weez in if you are going to burn it. I use a stainless steel metal cylinder, but you can use an old barbecue 
uh, like so, I mean, at Kalima, I use an old barbecue. Like, there's an old, like, an old barbecue that got left out somewhere, and I just put it in there. But you need something suitable to burn things in, where everything's going to stay together. Um, and gloves. I do recommend you wear gloves. Um, depending on the ta'weez, you know, I tend to just wear medical sort of medical gloves, like just like sort of thin gloves over the top. But if it's really nasty or something, you might want to wear thicker gloves, depending on what it is. If the ta'weez is encased in a container, like a, you know, like a tube, you may also need a pair of pliers and scissors. So a pair of pliers to hold it while you burn it or while you rip it open or while you twist it. And usually a pair of scissors is more useful than other things because you can get inside, you can pinch with them, you can squeeze with them and open up. Um, and, you know, I have to recommend eye protection. You know, at the end of the day, you might not do it. I probably don't. But if you are playing with bits of metal and ripping them apart and they're flying all over the place, it really would be a sensible idea to cover your eyes. It doesn't cost, I mean, it probably costs 10 dirhams for a you know, plastic set of goggles that if you're ripping these things apart and bits are shooting everywhere, which they shouldn't be, but you know, at the end of the day, it's probably sensible. And I used to recommend a loose razor blade, but since then, I think the safer option is one of those art blades which are the blades you snap them off all the way down. You know, they're like a Stanley knife or a blade, but you can just snap off a piece and then you get another one and you snap it off. It's like a, like, it's a bit better than holding a razor blade with your fingers. You know, I think Sheikh Adel had too much influence on me with holding razor blades with your fingers and putting pins through and you know, he's really like relaxed about it because I think he does it all the time. But if you want it to be a bit more safe, I think one of those plastic uh, th things which have a very sharp blade inside and you snap the blade off is pretty good. And uh, if you need rukia water, then you will need a bowl of tap water. So while opening the ta'weez, first of all, respect the danger of the ta'weez. They are not safe, they are toxic, they are pretty horrible, and they can cause you a pretty nasty affliction just by opening them. So respect them, or respect the danger of them, by reading al-falaq and al-nas all the way through. Keep constantly reading al-falaq and al-nas, blowing. Don't blow if you see any najasat, obviously. If you see any stool, blood, whatever, I wouldn't blow over that. But, you know, generally, uh, be blowing over the ta'weez as you're going. Uh, how, first step is how to open the ta'weez. So the first step is to open the ta'weez completely inside of the tray so everything falls in the tray. So, you, for example, if it's one of those ones with, in a metal tube, often they're sealed with wax. So take your pliers, hold it, and take the long neck gas lighter and just warm the wax so the wax starts dripping on the tray and then what will happen is there'll be a piece of paper inside I usually have a piece of metal or a pair of scissors just put it in and pull the piece of paper out and usually it comes out like a piece of paper wrapped in string but you know just use your common sense to open it safely carefully everything falls on there um, Try not to break the ta'weez up while you're opening it because ideally we want the ta'weez in one place so we can properly get rid of it. We don't really want a piece still left inside, a piece of it ripped on the floor. A piece, we want to kind of keep it in one place. Um, if it's encased in metal or leather or wax, um, use scissors and suitable tools to remove the metal or leather casing. Keep all of the discarded parts just out of safety. Keep the leather pouch, keep the string, keep everything in one place. Um, once the ta'weed is open, it should be inspected for knots. Okay? I.e., you're looking for al-uqad. وَمِن شَرِّ النَّفَّةِ فِي الْعُقَدِ 
Look for any knots, any knot you see. Even if you think it's just a knot that holds the neck, take your blade and cut through the knot. Don't try and undo the knot with your, with your hands because what you're going to find is if you try and undo the knot with your hands, uh, what you will probably find is that it becomes, extremely, uh, it becomes extremely difficult to do and often you'll miss the knot. You won't be able to do it. So take a blade and cut through the knot with the blade. I usually take any pieces of string and fully open them, like fully check them, they're straight, there's no knots, no knots, no knots, all right, put it down, no knots, put it down, no knots, put it down, and really thoroughly check it to make sure you're not missing anything. If the ta'weed is engraved in metal, then you need to grind the writing off the metal using a file or a multi-tool. So you could use a file, like a hand file, or if you're lazy, you could use a multi-tool or intelligent, whichever way you want to look at it. You could use a multi-tool and just hold the ring with pliers and just put one of these rotational um, rotary type tools on it and just grind the writing off the front. Otherwise, you can do it by hand with a file or sanding paper or something similar. Now, this is a key point. If the ta'weez is made of writing in soluble ink, Okay, now soluble ink is usually yellow color. It's very faint. You can't read the letters properly. It looks kind of like it's faded or pink color. It's usually yellow or pink. And it looks like it's blurred. The writing is blurred on the page. This is soluble ink. Then we recommend that you destroy it using what I'm going to tell you now, the water method. Any other ta'weed should be destroyed using the burning method. If it was given to you to burn, or you know it was given to the patient to burn, don't burn it, use the water. Okay? So you've got two choices, water or fire. Okay? You've got water, you've got fire. Use the water in three cases. Number one, when the ta'weed was given to you to burn. So it's got written on it, burn this. Or the person said, I was given this to burn twice a day. That's when you need to use the water. If it is soluble ink, that is ink that dissolves, like this pink ink and this yellow ink, dissolve it in water. And the third, if you don't know what to do, use the water first. Okay, so what is the water method first of all? Take a bowl of water, recite Al-Fatiha, the last three surahs of the Quran in it. If you have already got Rukia water prepared, you can use that. Keep the bowl of water on the tray, so if anything spills out, it stays on the tray. Put the ta'weed into the water and rub off any of the soluble ink or powder or anything like that. Get rid of all of that. Throw in there the pouch, the string, anything else, you know, just to, just to check it, make it safe. And then what you're going to do is take the ta'weed out of the water, break it up as much as you can and leave it to dry. Okay, leave it to dry. If you're very ingenious, you can start using like, things to dry it and whatever, but just leave it to dry. The sun is more than enough in Dubai. So leave it to dry, break it up though so it's in pieces, leave it to dry from the water and then you can burn it after that inshallah. Um, we use water when you can't burn things, like for example leather pouches will not burn, so you can just put them in the water, take them out and then throw them away somewhere where people don't go. What you must be careful of if you do use water is, do not just throw the water down the sink or where people play or where people go because that water can be quite toxic and it can cause health problems to people. So the best thing to do with the water is go somewhere where nobody goes, the bottom of the garden or, you know, like some patch of sand somewhere and just throw it somewhere where nobody's going to get harmed by it, inshallah, just in case, even though it doesn't usually happen, but, you know, just in case. 
If you're happy that the ta'weed is not soluble ink, there's no sign it's been given to burn, and uh, you know, you, you, you just, you're going to burn it, inshallah, then this is what I do for most ta'weed, I burn them. And you know, some of our brothers from the ruqa don't allow this. They say that you should not tell this to the ordinary people because they might make a mistake, but to be honest, the legend do it, the hate do it, you know, the hate kibar, the hate al-amr bil ma'roof and nahi al-munkar do it. You know, I personally don't see the issue. You know, like I've heard people argue against it, but for me, to be honest with you, uh, I burn them. So, and you know, I've had various, you know, sort of things happen to me that have kind of suggested that's the right way to do things. Um, and one time I didn't burn a ta'weed and, you know, something quite negative happened. And when I burnt it, it went, I mean, I kind of like, just from my experience, I've kind of learned that, look, you should burn them. And there's an evidence for this in Sahih al-Bukhari uh, and others from the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, that in some narration she said to the Prophet sallallahu did you not burn it, O Messenger of Allah, with regard to the magic that was done to him sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So, you know, I'm not really a fan of this idea that magicians have put booby traps into the magic so that if you burn it, it will set another magic. Any, I, 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 think, I don't think there's a lot of dalil for this. And I think that certain brothers from, from the people who do Rukia have popularized this opinion and made it really popular and spread it to the world. But um, I don't think if you follow this method and bearing in mind that there's nobody probably in the world who destroys more magic than the hater in Saudi. These guys destroy tons of the stuff, you know, like, and they've always used this method. This is what I'm confident with. So at the end of the day, I, very, I, I respect their opinion. I don't, you know, I don't criticize them, but I don't entirely agree with their conclusion that ta'weeth should never be burnt. If you're going to burn it, put it in a suitable container to be burnt. Try and burn it outside, somewhere away from where people go. You know, don't like sit there and inhale the smoke or something like that. Using a long neck gas lighter, burn the ta'weed as completely as possible. Try not to inhale the smoke. If it doesn't burn, and yes, I've had pieces of paper that don't burn. I've poured gasoline on them. Don't recommend that. But anyways, I've poured gasoline on them and they don't burn. And I mean they don't burn. They burn, the fly, flame comes, and the paper is completely as it was. Okay, we thought we did it wrong. Dip the paper in the gasoline, put the paper on there, light it, flame comes, paper's exactly the same. Not even a mark on the paper, either side, it's exactly the same. That's when you know that you need to read over the paper because something is weird going on with the paper that's stopping. It could be a coating, but usually it's a jinni that is sign of, sort of stopping this from uh, taking place. So you want to be sort of reading al-falaq and al-nas, blowing over it and then lighting it. And, you know, I mean, me and, and uh, Brother Imran have been doing this in Kelima for quite some time. And we've had some, some funny times where it's, so we've had one time where a paper burnt for like 45 minutes, this tiny piece of paper burnt for like 45 minutes. Now, it was dipped in wax, to be fair, but 45 minutes for this tiny little bit of paper, it's just burning and burning and burning. Alhamdulillah, with reading and burning and reading and burning, it went away. So if you are scared, if you are worried, if you do kind of take the other opinion, then use the water method, dry it out, and then burn it, inshallah, and that will hopefully neutralize any sort of dangers in getting rid of the ta'weeth. You can read the full article on my website, How to Destroy a Ta'weeth. That will be easier for you than me just going through it now. Um, one last one that I wanted to deal with, one last article I highlighted from the website. Sometimes people come to me and say, I can't do your Rukia program. It's just too complicated. If you could advise me to do one thing, what would it be? Like if I couldn't do Rukia and I couldn't do anything and you could only tell me just one single action in the day that I could do. And I thought about this and um, 
my first kind of disclaimer is don't take this and say this is all I'm going to do. You know, take this as a start. But if you feel you really can't do anything, then my answer is dua. My answer is dua. Because, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَقَالَ رَبُّكُمْ أُدْعُونِي أَسْتَجِبْ لَكُمْ Your Lord said, call upon me and I will answer you. And at the end of the day, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, a man came to him and said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, the legislated acts of Islam have become too much for me, so inform me of something that I should stick to. He said, let your tongue not cease to be moist with the remembrance of Allah. So the reality for me is dua and remembering Allah, and, and that is, that's the first place you start. And then you build yourself upwards step by step. Okay. I'm going to go through my outstanding questions, and then I'm going to go through your outstanding questions, and then I'm going to go through the questions from the online viewers as well. Um, okay, uh, this is one that just came to me. It's, it's uh, people complaining about people who do rukia in their family. So the way this goes is, my wife reads too much. She doesn't cook, doesn't clean, doesn't look after the house. Uh, because she's always doing your ruqya that you told her to do. Uh, and, you know, she started doing bakara once a day, and, uh, you know, like, she's not taking care of the house, and the wife is saying, see, this is the shaitan. And uh, he is basically, you know, look, you see, I told you he was the shaitan in the house, and he is the one who is telling, don't read ruqya, don't read Quran, I will never listen to you. La al-khaliq. You can't disobey, you know, you can't obey creation in disobeying the creator, you know, and, and so on. And it's happened to me more than once. So I want to give a balanced answer. Rukia is really important. And taking away from your treatment is not sensible. You know, if your wife had cancer, and the doctor told her she needed to take a certain treatment every day, and you said, I don't want her to take that treatment, and instead of that, I want her to clean the house, I think everybody would agree that that is not the right way to do things. So I think the brother or the spouse should respect the fact that it's an illness, it's a treatment that needs to be done and needs to be carried out according to the prescription, and that's important. At the same time, a sister is not going to be given tawfiq from Allah if she's making her husband angry and she's not fulfilling her other responsibilities as well to the best of her ability. So I also think that everything has a time. The Prophet ﷺ said, but oh, there is a time for this and there is a time for that. So doing rukia all day and not doing anything else, I don't think is the right way of doing things. Make sure she's following the prescription because that's what's being given to her as what's going to benefit her, inshallah. And take that seriously. At the same time, choose the timings and choose the length of recitation so that she's not falling short in some of the responsibilities towards her husband, which is a major part of getting cured because at the end of the day, making your husband happy or your spouse happy, your parents happy is a major part of making Allah happy. And so at the end of the day, you can't fall short in that. So I'm kind of balanced. I'm not going to say to her, stop reading Quran, but maybe think about when are you reading Quran? You know, if you're reading Quran, you choose your rukia time, it's the time your husband comes home from work and he needs things done. I think it's probably not a sensible time to choose to do rukia. So try to choose the right time and don't allow the shaitan to make rukia the cause of argumentation between you. A bit of compromise from the husband and a bit of compromise from the wife and I think that would work out just fine. Do I have to tell someone at the time of marriage if I am affected? 
Um, yes, and I think there are elements when you do, because I think at the end of the day, anyone who has a serious flaw in themselves, physically or you know, mentally or otherwise, you're not really allowed to conceal that from your spouse when you want to get married and say to them, yeah, I'm perfectly healthy and fine, when you know that the doctors told you, for example, you can't have children. Like, I, you, know, you, can't, you know, you can't conceal that, for example, from, and I think that a gin problem is, is quite a serious problem. Having said that, I don't think you need to spill your heart out and say, this happened to me yesterday and this happened to me yesterday, but I think a sensible balance is that you say that I have been suffering from an affliction of magic, I am treating it, and alhamdulillah, I'm, I have it under control, but I wanted to let you know about that, inshallah, because I want someone who's going to support me in it. I don't want someone who's going to be, you know, leave me in it. And at the same time, you know, I think it's, it's, it's only fair to let you know that that, that that is a problem, but alhamdulillah, it's being treated, and, you know, it's on its way out. No problem. I mean, I think that's a very sensible thing. Uh, but I do think that you can't just leave the issue and, and let it go, because, you know, if the scholars don't allow you to leave the issue of, for example, not being able to have children, then you know, the issue that you get attacked or that you get thrown around by a jinni is probably you know, at least as important to tell somebody you know, about uh, when it comes to marriage. Okay, really common question, and you guys might find this strange, but I have to answer it. I answer it almost every time. Why don't you answer my calls or emails? <laughs> and I say to people every time, Wallahi, please, yani, ahsin bi akhiqadvan. Think good of your brother. Don't think that I ever sit there and say, oh, I don't want to answer them, I don't want to answer them. But if you imagine getting, let's just say, just imagine getting 100 people a week, and that's sometimes a lot less, but just imagine getting 100 people a week who email you with detailed cases and, and comments and replies and problems. You can't see them all. You can't help them all. You know, I try to answer every email that I get. And I do my very, very best to answer every single email, but it does take time. It can sometimes take a month, sometimes two months, sometimes I'll answer in a video, sometimes I'll answer in a blog post. I'll always do my best to answer, but at the end of the day, I want people to understand, because this video has been recorded and will be shared, inshallah, online, I'm not a paramedic or an emergency service. You can't just expect to click your fingers and Muhammad Tim will just turn up. You know, you have to be a bit sensible about the number of people who are asking for help. And at the end of the day, I've got some systems in place to answer as many people as possible and help as many people as possible. Alhamdulillah, I'm not the only person doing it. It's many, many hundreds and thousands of brothers all over the world who are helping people and sisters, helping people all over the world with these issues. Uh, so, you know, Alhamdulillah, there are other people to go to. But, you know, I always do my best to answer people's emails. I always do my best to try and reply. But be reasonable about it. Yani, like people sending me nasty emails or rude emails or like, you know, things like you killed my cousin, things like that. That's not going to endear me to you. And that's most likely going to lead to me hitting the delete key because I don't feel I have an obligation. You know, at the end of the day, we are, um, you know, we do our best for the sake of Allah. But at the end of the day, it's not my job. Kalima doesn't employ me to do it. Kalima employs me as a teacher and the da'ya for new Muslims and non-Muslims and all that stuff. They don't employ me as a raqi. So at the end of the day, I do my best in what little time that I have, and that's all I do. And so people need to read the conditions on the website. There, is a set, there are a set of conditions which say that I will only answer on these conditions. And I put those there to make it easy for everyone, because I want everyone to get an answer. And I want to be able to help as many people as possible. And I don't want one person to be rude and take up two hours of my time and, and have some poor person who's in more need 
then take up, you know, then not get the time they need. So we ask people to keep the emails very, very short, to make them very brief, to the point, if I want more information, I'll ask for it. And there's a whole bunch of conditions online. Don't, you know, don't be lazy because you can't be bothered to watch the Rukia thing. One person emailed me and said, you know, can you tell me about the answer to this problem? And I said, sure, the answer is in the video. This is the video and you can find the answer. They said, uh, I don't want to watch the video. So I said, Alhamdulillah, and what do you want me to do then? And you don't want to watch the video? No, I want you to give me a reply. So, okay, and I will, like, you know, what shall I do? Like, after that, what shall I do? What can I do at the end of the day, except I try to make it as painless for everybody as possible. But there are projects, there are charity projects, there are dawah projects. We can't throw them all away and just answer people's emails all day. So people have to be balanced about how they send emails and follow the conditions. And I am strict about it. If you don't follow the conditions mentioned on the website, you'll get a nice email back saying, Jazakallah khair for your email, but you didn't follow the conditions on the website, please send them, send the email again. And you can find those conditions and my email on muhammadtim.com forward slash contact. Now my email is hidden at the bottom and there's a reason it's hidden at the bottom and that is to stop people just clicking on it without reading the article first, which tells you what to do. So if you read the article in full, it'll become very clear where the email is. It's just hidden within the, like the article so that people can, like don't just click on it and then say, you know, do you do Rukia? Can I have a Rukia session from you? Can I this, can I come and see you? And that's not gonna work. Well, at the end of the day, we've gotta find an efficient way to help as many people as possible. And I hate saying no to people. So what we wanna do is let people help themselves by sending sensible questions researching themselves first, trying themselves first, then sending questions. And you know, the people who try, I try for them. And the people who don't try, I'll be honest, I don't try for them. If people are lazy and sending me silly emails and blaming me for things and shouting at me, I need the most they're gonna get is a single line reply that just says, do this, Zakallah khair. You know, like, that's the nature of human beings. So at the end of the day, if you help yourself and you know, I see that someone's really trying and really trying to understand and doing their best, then I'll really go the extra mile to help them, inshallah. But if I see that they're not, then you know, the end of the day, uh, I won't. That's one. Okay, very common question I keep getting asked. Do you um, have to be sinless to be cured? And I, I think this is, you know, I don't think someone means necessarily sinless as, as such. But I think people mean that, you know, do I have to get to the point where I don't, is, is the reason why I'm not being cured that I have too many sins? And what we always say is with regard to your sins, you always have to have a balance, a balance between fear and hope. You never ever feel your sins are so bad that there's no hope for you and there's no way for you to be cured. And at the end of the day, you know, you, you just have to, you know, that it's never going to work until you don't have any sins at all. And Allah is not going to answer your dua. And that's not the case. All of us sin. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers our dua. Allah answers the dua of the non-Muslim when they make dua. Allah answered the dua of Iblis when he said, my Lord, give me respite until the day that they will be gathered. At the end of the day, Allah answers the dua of people who are sinful because that is his nature and his attributes, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So at the end of the day, we're not saying take your sins lightly. We're saying review your sins and try to reduce your sins, but don't lose hope in Allah and don't say that I have to be sinless in order to be cured. I'm just gonna go through some of the paper ones quickly and then I'm gonna go to the, to the guys and I'm gonna try and get through as many as possible. Even if you guys don't have any, I've got loads, so don't worry about that. 
let's have a look at one that is, you know, reasonable. Uh, kids' toys or stuff that has pictures on it. I, you know, what I do, and again, I might be a little bit on the sort of strict side on this, but this is what I do. I have a box outside on my balcony that I fill with things that have pictures in it, and then when I have time, I bring the box inside and I fix them. You know, for example, I sand the face off, or I, I cover it with something, or I pluck the eyes out, or I, you know, I do whatever it, you know, whatever individual thing it takes, or I color it with a paint pen or whatever. I do whatever it takes to, you know, get the picture off. But I tend to like when my kids come home with like big, you know, like I don't know, dolls or something like that. They just go in a box outside on the balcony until I have time to either throw them out, my kids forget about them, or, you know, that's true. And they know I do that as well. Uh, and I, you know, inshallah, try to buy them something in replacement. Or I, you know, like, off with its head, as is sometimes needed. I actually decapitated all of my little son's uh, army toys that he brought, <laughs> one by one. He had little, little army figures, and they were really nice, and they came with little cars and everything. So the first day we got them, we said, these are really nice, and we don't want to throw them out. So we just took scissors and off with their heads. And they don't have any heads, and I don't think he noticed. <laughs> he plays with them just the same. I don't think he's noticed that they don't have any heads. Um, how is evil eye and the jinn connected? Wallahi, this is a very good question. And this is a, a tough question to answer in many ways, okay? Uh, the reason it's a tough question to answer is we don't know as much about the evil eye as we know about um, the jinn. Uh, and uh, Ibn al-Qayyim has perhaps what I think is the best definition, an arrow that goes from your soul or from the soul of the, the jealous or amazed person to strike at the soul or the body of the person who is the target. So imagine it's like it's on the level of the soul. It's like something which is not a worldly thing. It's not a, it's not a, a physical thing. It's, it's something on the level of the soul which is shot like an arrow at a person when someone feels jealousy or, or amazement. And subhanAllah, uh, that in itself doesn't involve the jinn. But the jinn can be related to the evil eye in two ways. One is that they can follow the evil eye. So for example, you get the evil eye, imagine you're wearing armor, you're wearing some you know, helmet and some shield, and you get, you know, you got like a bulletproof vest, let's say. And you get shot in the bulletproof vest a few times. And the, you know, the rounds don't go into your skin, but your vest is weak. Then after that, if someone comes and shoots you again in the same place, the bullet will go through into your skin because you've been shot in the same place. And the first time the vest protected you, but then you, know, you lost the power of that. So what can happen is you get shot by the evil eye. And what can happen is that the jinn then, you have a weakness and a susceptible, you know, you're susceptible to the jinn attacking you because you were afflicted by the evil eye. That's one thing. The other thing is this issue of Ainul Jinn, evil eye from the jinn. And this is an issue that there isn't a clear delil for, but many of the scholars spoke about the ability of the jinn to give the evil eye. And that's like much closer because the, the person giving you the evil eye is from the jinn. And that's a debatable issue, but some of the scholars uh, said it. One thing that's really interesting with regard to armor uh, is that interestingly enough, some people have a funny thing happen to them. Magic, for example, is done to them, but they don't get really sick. And often what happens is it's, it's like being shot at while you're wearing armor. 
Sometimes the bullet lodges in the vest, sometimes it hits you in the shoulder, sometimes it hits you in the heart. So it may be that the person shoots at you and misses. So there's a magician trying to do magic on you, and they're like this assassin with a gun, and he shoots at you and he misses. So it doesn't affect you at all. And it may be he shoots you and your armor repels the, the bullet. And so you become like the, you know, your adhkar, your salah, your, your tawheed repels the bullet and you are not affected. Or it may be that he finds a chink in your armor and you're not badly affected, but you get hit in the shoulder and you start, you know, like maybe having some minor problems instead of major ones that, you know, you should. And the example of this is like the example of the magic that was done to the Prophet when it was done to kill him and it only just caused him because of his iman and his, his taqwa and his nearness to Allah it only just caused him to become a little bit forgetful about things in the dunya so it was done to kill him but instead of killing him it just made him slightly forgetful about things in the dunya because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected him so it's kind of like just being grazed by a bullet you know just being hit on the side by something but it doesn't cause the main uh, pain or the main thing or like being hit by a bullet where the vest takes it but you still have a, a broken rib or something you know you have some effect from it but it's not the effect that the magician intended it uh, to be and it you know again a lot of things can happen in that regard but this is one key point that when you get we talk about magic one of the key things to realize is that when it comes to magic being aware of magic and being aware of it happening is vital to you being able to treat it quickly. So if you can be quickly aware of the problem and treat it quickly, in some ways it's like cancer, the quicker you treat it, the more chance you have of living. Um, it's a very, very, you know, you treat it quickly and you're aware. Most people are affected by magic when they are not aware that it's going to happen to them. Like they're like a person who's just walking down the street and they don't know there's an assassin waiting in the doorway to shoot them. And they're just walking happily down the street with no armor, no protection. And the assassin walks out and shoots them. It's really easy. At the end of the day, if you want to protect yourself, you've got to be aware of it happening to you. Spot the signs early and treat yourself quickly. And that's an important point. Um, when kids don't pray, can we beat them after telling them nicely for a long time? Uh, the Prophet said, command them to pray from seven, that's seven hijri, and um, chastise them if they don't pray from ten. And that chastisement should be in an appropriate way. It might be grounding them, because I, mean, I know I can slap my kid on the hand and he just doesn't mind. Or I can take it, you know, his horse riding away for a week and he's really upset. So, you know, you've got to think about how you chastise your child in a way that's appropriate to your child. I'm, I'm just going to take the ones I have, and then we'll do some questions on the floor, then we'll do some more written questions. Okay. Um, the, should the order of Rukia be starting at Surah Al-Fatiha, then Baqarah, then Falaq, and Nas? And if you start but finish before 45 minutes, should you read again? Uh, again, you know, I don't think it has to be in order, but I tend to do it in order, you know, just out of a habit, I tend to do it in order but you don't have to do it in order. And the 45 minutes is not like a strict thing, so you can repeat it again, you can do it twice, you can do it, you know, like whatever is easy for you, inshallah. I did cupping and my doctor said I have ayn, as my blood was bubbly in the cup. Is it true? No, I don't think this is true. It can be true. 
But one of the reasons that blood can be bubbly in the cup is because of very thin hairs on the skin that can also cause the blood to be bubbly in a cup. So be careful with cupping that there are some kind of myths and misconceptions that blood, bubbly blood is always iron or something like that. It, I mean, it doesn't have to be. Sometimes it's a reaction with something on the skin. Sometimes the very, very fine hairs that are on the skin cause the bubbles to come. But sometimes it can be. So it depends how, you know, if the doctor's really good, you know, they probably know the difference. But, you know, it's worth you treating. If, it, if you have iron, it's worth you treating it with a seven-day program. Toys and teddy bears, are they required to be covered? Absolutely. Get rid of them. Decapitate them. Get them out of the house. Uh, a little girl is allowed to have a rough rag doll to play with to encourage her motherly instincts. So something that is like a very rough shape, maybe like... Um, you can get them even here in Dubai. You can get them like they're kind of rough, made of material, and they're not like very human-like. They just got two lumps for hands and two lumps for legs, and you know, like a lump on the top, a ball on the top for a head, and maybe some very basic sort of you know, like basic, very basic sort of rag doll. They're fine to play with, inshallah, for little girls, but not for teddies for boys or anything like that. Um, I've got a pile of questions there. Uh, this one's pretty long. Um, Okay, I think this long question about the, the true dreams and the, and the prophecies and things like that, I think this one, it would be better for me to speak to the person personally because it's quite a long question and I think it will take a lot of our time and it's something that probably only happens to one person in the room. So I think that one we can deal best with by in person. If, I, if they don't come to see me in person, then I will try to answer it at another time, inshallah, because it's a little bit long and it has a lot of aspects to it and I think it's probably specific to that one person whose mother has those sort of dreams. Um, my family's from India, maternal relatives have a family tattoo, there's some murky story behind it, holy man told them, um, so holy man put it on a goat and shot it, nothing happened to the goat, the king was impressed and requested the holy man to give him the tarweed, but the holy man refused to give it to him, citing he did not believe in it the first time, I don't know how it ended up in our family, but almost everyone wears it 24-7, even in the toilet, I removed and shredded it, it had Arabic supposedly from the Quran, but I cannot be sure, how can I convince my family to give up wearing such a tarweed, I would strongly recommend for you two resources, the first resource that I would strongly recommend is the tarweed project, T-A-W-E-E-Z project, and I believe it's .com. Very, 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 very good project with a lot of resources to convince the family. I would also recommend you watch the Taweev video from, my, from Abu Ibrahim and my, uh, our Rukia course. So that's me and Abu Ibrahim did a, one of the segments of the 10 is on the Taweev. And I would also recommend that you watch a video that I did on my Better Half YouTube channel on the topic of uh, opening ta'weez and interpreting ta'weez. So there's three resources from you, uh, for you, inshallah. Um, where do I go next? Okay. Um, let's take a couple of questions. If there's any questions, just quick questions. Anyone has any quick questions that don't need writing down? We'll just uh, grab a couple of questions. Abu Harun. Just a quick question about intention. The intention is very important. You're in Rukia when you're reciting. Um, what if at the early stages you're not quite sure what you're dealing with, whether it's Ain, whether it's um, Sihir? Um, what kind of intention should you make? Should you just make one general one to encompass everything? I've seen people do it, do like the recitation three different to, uh, to address the three different issues that it could be. 
Okay, brilliant. I, a really good question. So the issue of intention, uh, we know the Prophet ﷺ said, uh, so does Rukia need to be done different times for different intention for Ayn or for Mas or for Jinn or for whatever? Uh, and how does that work? I think it's more than sufficient to make the intention for Rukia. Because I think most of the people who do Rukia, you don't know exactly what is going on. And often it can be a complex mix of cases. And I don't think there's any Dalil for doing it three times. I think at the end of the day, your intention is to gain Shifa for that person from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And intention is not something that has to be verbalized or remembered. It's just that, you know, you know what you're doing. I'm doing Rukia, seeking Shifa. And I think Istishfa is enough of an intention to have. I don't think it needs to be specific. I think it's enough for you to have the intention of Shifa from, for them, for whatever they are suffering from, inshallah ta'ala. And I think this is more in line with what we know from the Sunnah and the principles of Niyyah, inshallah. Um, and uh, I think this is sort of what I understand to be the way to do things is a general niya because you just don't know what it is that you know you are you know the person is suffering from in, in you know in that kind of sense uh, i've been asked to answer some of the questions on the uh, whatsapp uh, because uh, we have some people who are uh, following us online and we want to answer a couple of their questions so uh, question, how about having Rukia via media like tape recorder CD? In some of my previous workshops, I've mentioned that this is not Rukia, but it's a decent support for Rukia. It doesn't replace Rukia audio, does not replace Rukia, but it is a decent support. Like prophetic medicine, it just it's like a nice help. If the person is falling asleep, dropping down, not able to concentrate, then what we can do is we can kind of let them read as much as they can, then put the audio on, then let them read as much as they can, it's the physical reading that will make the biggest difference, but the audio is helpful uh, from time to time. Uh, question, a person, Rukia treatment, doing the, they were able to see the jinn around him. And uh, after he was pronounced cured, he says that he can still see them. Will he have to live with this? I think if he can still see them, that's a symptom that, you know, we, we talked about the gold standard for being cured. That's a symptom that says that he's not fully cured yet. Because if he was fully cured, he would not be able to see them anymore, inshallah ta'ala. Read the blog post, when do I know my treatment is complete? Our gold standard is no side effects at all. And no, inshallah, he does not have to do with the rest of his life. Sometimes a patient shows several signs of jinn possession. When you recite on them for an hour or two, they have no reaction. Is there a recommended amount of recitation before you get a reaction? Brilliant question. And my answer to that is, um, there's no specific amount, and I don't think you should put any limit on yourself, like one hour, two hours, three hours, whatever. I think at the end of the day, what you should do is simply recite as much as you can until you see the person is getting better. Because if it's a psychological problem, Rukia will help. If it's a medical problem, Rukia will help. If it's a jinn problem, Rukia will help. And if it's evil eye, Rukia will help. So at the end of the day, for me, what I see is that Rukia is, uh, is a cure for every illness. And don't, you know, don't get hooked up on a reaction. We talked about this last time in the last workshop. Don't get hooked up on a reaction. Always waiting for someone to hit the ceiling or hit the roof. Don't wait for it, inshallah. Just read on them and trust that the, that the Qur'an will do what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed it to do as a shifa and as a cure for mankind. Um, some of the scholars say use a microphone doing ruqya in groups and having a ruqya center is not allowed. What's your view on this? Wallahi, there's no doubt that there is a fatwa in this regard from the legend al-da'imah. 
and we have, you know, these are our shiuch, our scholars, we have a lot of respect for them. What I would say as an other or as an excuse for the situation where that is done is I would say to them that often there is an, a very strong need to do it in a group. I agree, I don't recommend doing it in a group, I don't take a microphone and do it for everybody, but I understand that sometimes there is a need and it's very, very hard to do otherwise. And, uh, you know, I'm very good friends with the brothers in Rashidi Arukia Center, uh, and that's kind of the way that they do it. And uh, I had a chat with one of the brothers who's in charge there, and he said to me the same thing. He said, I fully respect the fatwa, and I understand why it's said, and we feel that we don't have really any other way to deal with this many people. And, you know, I kind of, um, I understand that. I, and I, I, it's not for me to make a judgment about which one is right, which one is wrong, but just, you know, like to kind of, mention to you that I don't recommend you doing it in a group, I don't recommend you doing it with a microphone, but sometimes you may find that you just don't have a choice. Fear Allah as much as you can. A person was approached by a jinn who claimed to be Muslim during Rukia treatment and appeared to fight against the shaitan. What are your thoughts on this kind of incident? Well, this actually happened to me or happened to a patient of mine and uh, I, totally, um, I totally believe in it, it's completely regular. But don't allow yourself to seek help from them. What you do is you say to them, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. My job is my job and your job is yours. We're not going to communicate. We're not going to have any discussion. Whatever you do is for the sake of Allah. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm not asking anything from you. I'm not asking Rukia from you. I'm not asking you to help. Whatever you do, you do it for Allah and you'll find the reward of that with Allah. But I will not have any further communication because you don't want to open the door. Oh, our Lord, some of us benefited from others until we reached our ajalana, our time span that you would reach for us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, The hellfire is your abode. So we don't want to be from those people. So it's really important when it comes to the uh, Muslim jinn, you don't engage with them. But you don't treat them badly either. Give them, you know, give them salam, return the salam, and that's it. And just say to them, look, you have your world, you have your job, I have mine. I'm going to do what I'm doing. And whatever you do, you'll find the reward of that with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But I'm not going to get involved, nor am I going to ask you to do anything or coordinate with you because it's just too dangerous. I'm, I'm going through as quick as I, as I possibly can. Uh, sometimes the patient saw several signs of gym possession. I've done that one. Yep. Person was a pro yeah, I've done that one. How seriously should we take claims of a jinn which appear to be correct. Uh, I would not take them seriously. I would not disregard them completely, but as soon as you start taking them seriously, the jinn realize that it's just a game and they can just play you so easily. And some of the Raqis I know who do Rukia, they have YouTube channels, they're very famous, and they have fallen into this affliction that they just believe everything the jinn tell them and the jinn just literally play with them so badly. The jinn attend, go here, go there, run here, run there, do this, do that. And it, you know, it might seem to be true and they're telling them that sihr has been done in the house. At the end of the day, the shaitan is a liar. He may tell you the truth. I've seen cases where a magician has diagnosed a person with rukia and been right. I've seen a magician say to someone, you've got sihr done by your whatever, second cousin, you know, like, and it's been right, it's been proven to be true. He told you the truth, even though he is a great liar. So the reality is, if he's a liar, If a fasiq comes to you with news, make sure of it. And the jinn is for sure a fasiq. 
because this is a shaitan. And even if it's not a shaitan, even if it's a Muslim jinn, it's anonymous. And the anonymous person is the same as the fasiq because you don't know whether they are pious or not. So when the fasiq comes to you with news, check it out. Don't, you know, start running around. I, you know, if the jinn said to me, the magic is under your front doorstep, under the mat, I would continue the rukia session, finish it up to my extent, finish, and then when I have a minute, go and look under the mat. That's what I would do. I would not be the one to like sort of be, stop the rukia, run under the mat, because it's just ridiculous. You just end up looking at the mat, looking in the ceiling, looking on the floor, and they're just laughing at you, just going up and down and looking everywhere. Um, and I don't think you should take what they say about diagnosing the case very well, but just bear it in mind. What I tell brothers to do is, when the jinn tell you what the story is, like this was done by your sister-in-law or whatever, bear it in mind. Don't take it as truth. Don't be suspicious of that person, but just store it as a fact in your mind that you can come back to later if you find evidence to support it or evidence against it. And you know, that's a good follow-up question. People say, well, what should I do if, if I know who did the magic? The answer is there's very little that you can do. There's very, very little you can do. That you, you know, in almost any country in the world other than Saudiya, there's almost nothing you can do if you know who did the magic. So it's a very little benefit to know. And usually at the end of the day, the best you can do is, like Allah said, take your precautions around them. And don't be suspicious, but be careful. You know, don't do anything that would cause you, you know, to any difficulty. I'm just going to go through these and then I'm going to finish with these and I'll have to go back onto these. So I'm, I'm trying to swap over. Uh, patient has jinns inside with sihr. Jinn has never spoken, but screams and cries during self-rukia. Tries to repeat shahada, but can't speak. Can animals from the jinn possess people? We don't have any evidence of that. And I think most likely this is at the effect of what I called you. Remember I talked to you about the sihr, about how the jinn gets kind of locked in. Some of the jinn are kind of like mute, you know, like they don't talk. Just like scream and wail. And they try to say things, but they can't. I don't think there's any evidence this is the animals of the jinn. I think that this is the jinn. But, you know, it's either a particular kind of jinn, which we know some jinn can be snakes and dogs, or it, it could be also... Uh, a jinn that because of the magic is unable to speak, you know, because magic can make you mute and maybe, you know, something goes on in that regard. And Allah knows best. If a patient thinks of one suspected person who could have done the sihr, should this sign be ignored? Absolutely. You know, store it in your mind, just like the jinn. The jinn are the least reliable and the second least reliable or the, you know, the, 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 the like second from bottom is what you imagine during the rukia session because the shaitan can manipulate what you imagine. Now, when you get very experienced, you get a bit of a feeling for when it's true and when it's not. And I tend to have a pretty reasonable feeling when someone says, I've just seen a picture of this man doing it, that this is true or not. But at the end of the day, you'd be very, very foolish to believe a vision. Sheikh Ali warned me against this. He said, don't follow these visions and things, but don't completely ignore them. They can be true, but they require a little bit of knowledge. So just what you need to do is store it in your mind and then look for some sort of, you know, supporting evidence in the future. Uh, does slightly heating the points of pulses under the skin help? Um, it, may, it may do. I haven't come across it. Um, I don't see any harm in it, inshallah. Um, and I, I, I would, you know, I'd be interested as to whether that might help some research to do, inshallah. Again, how the, there was a question about one of my friends has found something suspicious in his house. How does he get rid of it? I think we've answered that question, inshallah. Um, patient feels pulses under the skin and reacts strongly to the verses of sihr. Can hijama be done on the point of the pulses 
to trap and extract the jinn along with the sunnah points yes if you know what you're doing with hijama that is a very valid use of hijama if the jinn center themselves in one place and they come up like a lump or a pulse in that place and you trap it you can do hijama on that point i've done it before and it did it did work uh, sometimes a patient shows several hijama by the way is best used when the jinn is weak towards the end of the you know the end of the treatment uh, it, it doesn't usually work as well, my experience, it doesn't usually work as well when you do it in the beginning of the treatment. Uh, it helps if you do Rukia for quite some time and when you feel that the, the jinn is like kind of dying to get out, that's a good time to do hijama sunnah points and any specific points where the jinn is coming. But do be careful where you cut. If you don't know what you're doing with hijama, you don't want to be cutting something that's going to spray blood everywhere or whatever. You know, you want to be sort of know what you're doing. But if you know where you're doing, you can cut on the places where the jinn is kind of pulsating. That is a very valid thing to do. Um, we've gone through that one. And let's see. Uh, okay, what's the ruling of videotaping the Rukia session and posting it on the internet? This is not befitting. Wallahi, I've said this to you many, many times. I've said it to the brothers and the sisters. This is not befitting, Wallah. It's not befitting to concealing your brother's problems and flaws. It's not befitting to, you know, the sister with her hijab. It's not befitting to the haya of a Muslim. It's not befitting to do this. Uh, okay. I, you said that dua entering the home is not authentic, but it's in fortress of the Muslim. It is, and our Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Nasser, he changed his mind regarding this hadith. Initially, Sheikh Nasser said the hadith is authentic, and then in his later book, he corrected himself and said that it is not authentic. And you can see, I think, silsila al-da'ifa, maybe it is in there, inshallah, you can see, uh, that the, to the best of my knowledge, the Sheikh Nasser said it was Sahih in the beginning and then he found that the narrator he thought it was was not the narrator that it was and in fact the hadith has a weakness in it and fortress of the Muslim has some weak hadith in it there are millions of people reading this because fortress of the Muslim is published by Dar Salaam fortress of the Muslim is a beautiful book Jami' al-Tirmidhi has weak hadith in it Sunan ibn Majah has weak hadith in it Sunan al-Nasai has weak hadith in it SubhanAllah we don't throw those out of the window either you know, there's nothing to take away from Fortress of the Muslim. is an essential book. I keep it with me, you know, either on my phone or wherever I go in paper form. I give it to my kids. a wonderful book. But there is no book that is completely authentic after the book of Allah And then the most authentic book after that is Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim. At the end of the day, al-Isma is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the one that Allah gives it to. Perfection is for Allah and the one that Allah gives it to. And it's no big deal that there is a weak hadith or two. And the hadith is مختلف on fee. Some of the scholars say that it's sahih, some say it's da'if, but my personal opinion is that the hadith is da'if. Is there such a thing as partial jinn possession? Wonderful question. Um, yeah, possibly. I think there might be. Uh, there are certainly cases where the jinn don't seem, like I talked about children, and the jinn jumping in and jumping out, jumping in and jumping out. Like I kind of, you know, I do get the impression there's something that's not quite the same jinn possession as the jinn possession that we know. And Allah knows best. Wallahi, there's so much, you know, like Allah said, you have not been given from knowledge except a little. Wallahi, there is so much knowledge that we don't have. Uh, my husband needs ruqya, but he does not know. Can I do it for him? And will it be harmful? Uh, for me, um, 
I've got an article on this on my blog called When a Patient Refuses Treatment, and I answered that, inshallah, there. Uh, you can't do Rukia without someone's knowledge, but the sister, she can do Rukia on her husband. She should speak to him about it and then do Rukia on him, inshallah. Is sleep paralysis true? Uh, definitely sleep paralysis is true, but the question is, is it from the jinn or not? Uh, I think that uh, sleep paralysis um, uh, could be from the jinn and could also be from other potential things. But usually, I mean, a lot of cases of sleep paralysis react to ayat al-kursi and react to adhkar and things like that. And, you know, that's a more, you know, solid kind of idea. Uh, is a change of behavior in children, rudeness and disobedience, a sign of magic or just needs efficient parenting? Could be either. You know, I'm, I'm not a person, you know, I do rookie as a job, but I don't want to be one of those people who goes, evil eye, evil eye, evil eye, you know, like, like, you know, they, sometimes I get some of the aunties, Jazakumullah khairan, you know, my son is failing in his exams, it's the evil eye. And we say, auntie, probably he's just lazy, you know, like, <laughs> but like, subhanAllah, at the end of the day, you get it, you know, but I, I, I mean, changes in behavior in children can be part of growing up, it can be a part of parenting, can be lots of things, but my recommendation to you is, Give them the seven-day program, treat them slowly, and inshallah, we will, you know, we'll, we'll adjust and we'll see you know, as we go on whether we think this is something to be more concerned about. My sister says she sees scary people in her dreams who she's never seen before. Is this a case of magic? We're going to answer this with which blog post? The Frequent Nightmares blog post, and tell her to exactly follow that. Inshallah, everything is in there. Is there a jinn on someone? Is it necessary to remove it? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's necessary to remove it because it's dhulm. And it's, it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's not allowed for them to do that. And it can cause a person some really serious problems. It's like saying if someone has a, a tumor, you know, like a cancerous tumor, is it necessary to remove it? Well, you know, probably. So that's my answer to that. I'm not going to answer any more online questions. Uh, the reason for that is you guys are more deserving of me answering questions uh, because you guys are here today. And Jazakumullah khairan, the questions were amazing from the online audience. Jazakumullah khairan, but I am going to go through these. I guess I'm going to have to prefer these written questions over spoken questions just because I don't think we'll get through them if we don't. And usually what I do is if I have them left over, I answer them in a, like a Friday night reflections we'll do in, in a Nahda in Dubai, inshallah. And we'll do one session that's just answering whatever questions are, are left over. I did this last workshop as well. Okay, I'm going to go super quick. Is it permissible who to find out who gave the evil eye or ordered black magic? Um, okay. That's actually a more complicated question than you would think. With regard to the evil eye, the Prophet وسلم, when it happened to Sa'ad he said, do you accuse anyone of it? Do you blame anybody of doing this? So it is allowed for you to have a suspect in the evil eye and say, yes, it was, and I think it was Amir Rabi'ah uh, off the top of my head. So at the end of the day, it is, it is okay to have a suspect in the evil eye. And it's okay to ask someone to make wudu for you. And also, and we covered this in the last, uh, you know, in the previous Rukia workshops, I've covered it in detail. With regard to magic, almost every way that you find out whether magic has been done or not and how is shirk. So usually it involves going to a magician, doing another taweez, whatever, the magician tells you, measures your clothing or measures your mother's name or whatever, and comes out with the conclusion that you've had this being done by this person. This is nothing but shirk and takes you outside of Islam. So my you know, really strong recommendation, inshallah, is that uh, you don't try to find out, but you let it happen naturally. If you find out naturally, khair, inshallah, there's no harm in that. 
Can we do Ruqya for a non-Muslim? Yes, and I believe I've answered this on my blog. I have an article, if I remember rightly, called Ruqya for Non-Muslims. And uh, it explains how to do Ruqya for non-Muslims. There's no ikhtilaf that I know of among the scholars. And there is a clear hadith from the Sahaba about doing Ruqya for non-Muslims. And you can refer to that on the blog. There's a, an article on how to do it, inshallah. Please explain the disturbances caused by the jinn to the Raqi. Well, it's like this. You're coming to kill the jinn or drive them out of this person. And the jinn are obviously not so thrilled about that idea and would rather resist you to kill them and throw them out of the person, much like if somebody tried to kill you, you would resist. And so at the end of the day, they will resist with you. They will cause you some disturbances, maybe some poking, some scratching. I have a really sharp stabbing pain right now, right here in the back of my head which is perfectly normal and probably may all come from lack of sleep, but at the end of the day, you know, I get these things sometimes and I get kind of used to it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you are a soldier who is fighting to make the word of Allah the highest and the word of the magicians and the kuffar and the people who support them the lowest. And at the end of the day, you should expect, like anyone who is fighting for that cause, you should expect that you will get scratched and cut and wounded and you will have some, some other. And Allah said, They will only harm you with a small harm. They will, not, they will not harm you with something huge. They will not like, you know, destroy your akhirah. But they will give you some hard time because at the end of the day, they don't want us to tell people how to get rid of them. They don't want us to treat people. They don't want people to treat themselves. They want to do everything they can to stop that. And, you know, they're going to try with whatever they try. And we're going to say to them, you know, bring whatever you have. Like Musa said to them, Alqu ma antum Throw whatever you have to throw. Because whatever you have to throw, inna Allah Allah will render it invalid. No, whatever it is you're going to throw at me, Allah is going to render it invalid. How much from Surah Al-Baqarah should we recite in 45 minutes? If you remember from 45 minutes, I recommended just Fatiha, Ayat Al-Kursi, Amin Al-Rasul, and the rest. Uh, but if you're reciting Surah Al-Baqarah, I recommend you just divide it into chunks, like thirds. Like, for example, you could recite um, like, um, like one Hizb after every Salah, or you could recite like one Rubah after every Salah, or you could recite like, like say for example, a hizb and, uh, and uh, two ruba or something like that in a session, and then a hizb and two ruba in another session. Surah al-Baqarah is around about 50 pages in the Arabic uh, mushaf. So you could divide it like 10 pages after every salah, or 15 pages and 15 pages and 20 pages, you know, like on different days, you know, as you find it easy to get through, inshallah. Okay. Should problems of any form be seen as a form of sin or a test from Allah? How do we know if it's a sin and how do we know if Allah is testing us? It's a beautiful question. And uh, I get this question a lot. And I actually, I, I really, you know, I find this question is absolutely a beautiful question. Um, the reality is that every musibah that afflicts you has an element of your sin in it. Uh, and Allah Azza wa Jal said, Bahar al Fasadu fil Barri wal Bah, Mima Kasabat Aidin Nas. The, the uh, corruption has appeared on land and at sea because of what the hands of men have earned. That's one element. And every 
musibah that happens to you is an opportunity, it's a test. And Allah said, that we will test you with evil and with good as a trial. So when a bad thing happens to you, it happens because of your sins, and it is a test and a trial. And the two are not, you know, people, the biggest mistake people make is they make the two mutually exclusive. It's either a trial or it's either a sin. But the reality is the sins are a trial for you to come back to Allah. And the trials often happen in the first place because of your sin. So I see the two as one. I don't see the two as being separate. I feel difficult to recite Surah Al-Baqarah in one go. Break it into what you can manage. I find it difficult to recite in one go. Uh, break it down into what you can manage. I'd much rather someone reads Murattal Tartila with beautiful Tajweed than someone to just zoom through it in 50 minutes just to finish it. You know, like I, I think break it down. Can one do Rukia when there is abuse at home from parents or husband? Um, I think you should refer to my blog post on what to do when people refuse treatment. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, we need a multiple approach to problems when people are, you know, like people are getting abusive and getting, you know, like shouting and getting upset with it. Uh, we have to be a little bit intelligent. Choose when we do our ruqya. Choose what other methods we use to make the ruqya easy. And, you know, one, one I give to everybody, and I'll leave you to read the blog post, what do I do if a patient refuses treatment? But I'll just give you a little tip. For example, Allah said, Inna salata tanha anil wal munkar. The prayer prohibits immorality and wrongdoing. So, if a person is kind of being abusive and really a lot of manaki, a lot of munkar, and a lot of evil, then I would say that ayah suggests that there's something wrong with their prayer. And so maybe, rather than just rukya, 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 you also need to be focused on helping them to pray and helping them to get nearer to Allah, and hopefully that will help the abuse to stop. Uh, and we've got some other you know, uh, points on the blog post. Uh, could a woman who has had a genital burning which has no medical explanation, all tests are negative, be affected by jinn or magic? I think the word could is, is the important word here. Yes, I mean, at the end of the day, um, bruising on the body when you wake up, uh, attacks at night, burning, things like that. It could be caused by the jinn, but it doesn't have to be caused by the jinn. So what we say is, start with the seven-day treatment, move upwards, as we've said, take it step by step, see what happens, inshallah. And later on, inshallah, Allah will open you up a door to understand what the problem is. What are the symptoms of magic? We've answered that, inshallah, in the uh, first videos with Abu Ibrahim. If you check out the segment Magic and the Magician, there's a whole video of about, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour talking about the symptoms of magic and what the symptoms are of magicians, inshallah. Um, how would you approach witchcraft that's almost 24 years old and the person is aware of the one who did it? Well, that beautiful question. How do you approach magic which is qadim? It's ancient. It's been done years and years and years ago. I always tell people, magic is like a cancer, okay? So magic spreads in the body, it becomes deeply rooted in the body. The longer it is in the body, the longer it, you know, it becomes very deeply rooted. But at the end of the day, I would first of all approach it by recognizing to myself that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's nothing is difficult for him to cure. And Allah can cure someone after many years, like Ayyub. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, nothing is difficult for him in any aspect, in any way. And his matter, you know, his decree is only that when he wants something to happen, he says, kun fayakun. So I would put my trust in Allah. I would remind myself of that. I would remind the patient of that. 
and then I would begin from zero, without any presumption, without saying, oh, she's done this, done this, he's done this, he's done this, done Rukia, been no, zero. Back from the beginning. Let's check, seven day, proper Rukia program, slowly, slowly, testing ourselves, adjusting ourselves, taking ourselves to account, removing the sins, and all of the things we've talked about in the last two Rukia workshops from the beginning. And maybe the article, where do I start, would be a good, a good article for this person. Because a lot of people come and say, I've had magic for 24 years, nothing has worked. Almost like they're saying, almost like they're saying, I'm not sure you're gonna give me anything anyway. And I think that's the wrong approach. Because me, I, I mean, I can't give you anything, but that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can cure you, that is very easy for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to do. Uh, while performing Rukia, can we stop if someone interrupts or asks questions? I recommend not to stop. You can stop if you want. But I think if you stop too much, you end up letting the jinn just rule the show and it becomes difficult. Mostly in Pakistan, it's said to ask permission from Iraqi to perform Rukia. What do you say? I say the Sahaba did not ask permission from the Prophet ﷺ to perform Rukia, nor did uh, Aisha radiallahu anha when she blew on the Prophet ﷺ. And all of these examples, Rukia is not this big secret science. When they mean permission, they, you know, a lot of them mean magic. Rukia is a simple treatment that everyone can use for their kids, for themselves, when you have a cold, when you have a headache, when you have a stabbing pain in your head, you know, at the end of the day, Rukia can be used for all of those things. It's a beautiful cure. This Quran was sent down to all of mankind. It was sent down and it's a guidance for those who believe. Don't turn away from the Quran and say, it's only for the specialists. No, this Quran is for everybody. Me and my husband were afflicted by possession. We are better now. Alhamdulillah. I see some symptoms in my children. Um, scared, nightmares, tired, sleepy, pain like electricity in the hands when waking up. Um, and hipth. Again, my suggestion would be exactly what we said on the Rukia for Children segment. Go back to the video today. Listen to the Rukia for Children segment again. What you're seeing is probably the second category. So children who have strong symptoms but they're not like flying around or jumping in the air. So passive Rukia works best for them, inshallah, along with the oil and the water. And just as we described in the segment, maybe the person came late or maybe just need to be reminded, inshallah, we did a whole segment on Rukia for children today. And I would just totally advise that. I think they're at level number two. So it's not like, oh, you know, my child's just not themselves. It's kind of like, yeah, they do have some gin problems. There's electricity going through the arms. They're getting nightmares. Okay, we think it's a gin problem. So let's do the passive, gentle Rukia, inshallah, just as we described earlier on today. What do you have to say about this? I've seen a series of YouTube videos where the Raki uses two practices, gin catching, and the patient's gin to come into the Raki's dream. Yani, this is something yani, uh, from the bid'ah of Ibn Halima. Yani, and his bid'ah, and yani, this is well known, inshallah. And inshallah, we will write a refutation against this individual, bi'ibnillahi ta'ala, and we asked uh, Sheikh Ali Tawajri to comment on his case, inshallah. And we know that Ibn Halima, this individual, is not a person upon the sunnah. He is known for his bid'ah. He is known for bid'ah in his aqidah. He is known for bid'ah in his ruqya. And he is an individual who you do not take ruqya from him, nor do I advise you to watch his videos. And if it's not him, then it's one of his students. Because these are the people who innovated and invented this weird practice of reciting, and then believing that a door opens to the world of the jinn, and they can bring the jinn into people and control the jinn and lots of other things. So this individual is a mubtadi'. He's an innovator and he should be kept away from and warned against and we're going to make a full refutation against this individual and against the evil that he spreads within the ummah. 
Is it okay to keep a bottle of water and oil and blow in it every time we read Quran? Sure, inshallah. Um, I wouldn't like make it you know, something you do every time, but there's no harm if you want some ruqya water. Make niyah of ruqya, recite the Quran, and you blow into the water, bi-ithnillahi ta'ala. Um, my mother undergoes somewhat of a soul blackout. She won't know anything, not even who I am. After a few hours, she goes into a deep sleep, and she will not remember anything. She has a heavy head. Um, some people told me it's psychological, uh, and is this true? What can I do? You know, I can't tell you it's not psychological, but I think certainly the fact that the heavy head is very common with gin problems, likewise, this constant thing coming, and this sort of deep sleep, which lasts around five minutes, it's very, very consistent with gin problems. And that doesn't mean that she has a gin problem, but that just means it's definitely worth going down the route of Rukia, because at the end of the day, it's very, very consistent with Rukia. You could try hijama as well on the head. Uh, she may benefit, and hijama here in, in the UAE is really, really good. Um, and something that, inshallah, we, uh, you know, it's something, it's something we recommend to people to get done, inshallah. Uh, and maybe hijama on the head would help to relieve that. But otherwise, I would recommend just going down the route of Rukia and seeing where that route leads you. Someone's taken help from a magician to cast a spell and later decides to undo it. Is it possible for them to undo it? I have only one answer to that. وَقَالَ الشَّيْطَانُ لَمَّا قُضِيَ الْأَمْرِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ وَعَدَكُمْ وَعْدَ الْحَقِّ وَوَعَدْتُكُمْ فَأَخْلَفْتُكُمْ This is the nature of the shaitan. The shaitan will say when everything is gone and done, Allah promised you and his promise is true. And I promised you and I broke my promise. The shaitan will never ever fulfill the promise to undo the magic. It's not like, hey, you know, like I've, I've decided to practice Islam now and uh, you know, I'm not going to do the magic anymore. The shaitan will say, I don't care, you committed kufr, do what you want. And I'm going to keep going because the shaitan never ever fulfills his promise. He is somebody who constantly betrays. Is it true that a conceiving mother who is possessed will give birth to a possessed child? Um, no, I don't think that's a necessity, but it, I mean, it, it's a possibility. It can sometimes happen. Um, you know, this is down to my research, right? I don't have any dalil for this. This is down to just research, but just empirical evidence, like just what I see from patients. You know, sometimes there are cases where children will have a problem. I haven't established whether the reason they have a problem is because the magic was done on the family as a whole, or whether every mother who has a problem will pass it to the child. I don't think every mother, I've not seen every mother. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I don't advise people to worry about this. And the reason I don't is because at the end of the day, there are some things you have to leave to Allah. What did we say about tawakkul? Tawakkul is doing everything you can and leaving the rest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what we do with, you know, with regard to tawakkul. So at the end of the day, um, you know, I think, you know, when you're talking about things like that, will the jinn be possessed onto the child? What can you do except do ruqya on the mother and leave the rest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? I've not seen it happen every time. I haven't concluded whether it's because magic was intended for the child and that's why it passed, or whether that's just a natural thing of the baby taking the blood of the mother in the womb. I don't know that. Allah knows best. But I think at the end of the day, you can't worry about it. You just got to put your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, you know, وَعَلَى اللَّهِ فَلْيَتَوَكَّلِ مُتَوَكِّلُونَ Is it true, uh, sorry, if a husband disapproves of the wife to recite Rukia for her and her family due to his beliefs, can she still recite without bringing it to his knowledge? Uh, if those beliefs are, you know, are, are wrong and they contain, you know, sort of shirk and, and mistakes, uh, 
you know that at the end of the day there's no disobedience, there's no obedience to creation and disobedience to the Creator subhanahu wa ta'ala. At the same time, I think she should try and find a solution for that. It's never good to disobey the husband and it's never good to, to go behind someone's back because reality is if he's being afflicted, it's probably because he, of this Rukia problem. So what I would suggest you do is read my blog post on what to do if a patient refuses treatment and maybe to do Rukia for the children without his knowledge, that could be acceptable uh, and for the family. Uh, you know, that's a decision you have to make based on the circumstances. Um, I feel that the uh, authentic adhkar are enough. We don't need to add other ayat that work. It seems just like reading Yasin for reasons not specified in the Sunnah. I don't understand the prescription. Uh, would like your opinion. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you on one level and disagree on another level. Um, I agree with you on the level of the fact that us focusing on the Sunnah and the Sunnah is enough, like as in the you know Fatiha and, and Al Falaq and Al Nas. However, the majority of the Mufassirin, and this is something that our Sheikh Ali Tuwajiri mentioned in detail in Al Istishfa Bil Quran Al Karim, were of the opinion that the entire Quran is Shifa. They said that min here is not, I mean for those who know Arabic, min here is not tab'iliyah. It's not like a part of the Quran is Shifa. Allah said the whole of the Quran is Shifa and you can use the whole of the Quran in Ruqya. And the Prophet said, show me your Ruqya and whatever did not contain shirk, he allowed it. So uh, with respect to the question, I disagree because at the end of the day, the Prophet allowed Ruqya that did not contain shirk. Uh, but I do agree that there should be a clear focus on the ayat and the adhkar from the sunnah. I normally recite Surah Al-Fatiha, Ayat Al-Kursi, four calls, Surah Al-Baqarah at night after sleeping adhkar with the kids, approximately 30 minutes. Uh, but if the kids sleep, then I, um, then shall I stop? Uh, no, I don't think you have to stop. If it's your habit, you keep going, inshallah. You know, them going to sleep is not optimal, but it's not bad either, inshallah. You mentioned it has to be done when you're awake. Again, I, I didn't quite say that. I said that it's better you know, we tried its best practice to keep the patient awake. But if the kids are affected and they do go to sleep, leave them sleep. You know, th this is what we mean about passive rukia for children. Don't, you know, an adult, wake them up. Stick a misc block under their nose and make them wake up, you know. But at the end of the day, for a child, it's more passive, it's more gentle. Let them go to sleep. Man la yarham, la yurham. The one who does not have mercy will not be shown mercy. Uh, my son would wake up at 2 or 3 a.m. for a week and run out of his room to my room scared because he said he saw the shaitan. Um, a, a week later he came and said, I fought the shaitan, he got scared, I read Bismillah on him. And this was at 3 a.m. when he fought the shaitan. Should I be worried for him? La wallah, la wallah. You should not be worried for him at all. This is a bushra, inshallah, that your child is fighting the shaitan. La wallah, I mean it, yani. and I've had this happen with children before. I had one child. He said, I saw myself in a cave. And he had a rukia problem. He started to react. He said, while you were reading, I saw myself in a cave. And I saw myself surrounded by the leaders of the jinn and the shayateen. And I took a sword and I slayed them all. I just took a sword and I attacked them all until none of them were left. And then some of them were crying and saying that, why have you done this? You have killed us. You have killed us. And he said, then I went until none of them were left. And the rukia session stopped. And this is a bushra from Allah. This is from Mubashirat. This is from the glad tidings that come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And yeah, you know, you might want to do the seven day program, some passive rukya, just to make sure. 
but this is a wonderful thing that the child has fought the shaitan and overcome the shaitan and alhamdulillah this is possible for every single Muslim and every single believer because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not given them a sultan over us has not given them an authority and a power over us bi-idhnillahi ta'ala Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh I would like no references from hadith and Quran that tells us they're a jinn possession and magic um, which see that these are not told in the sunnah uh, and uh, this is a very common misconception. I actually have some notes on this on my website, inshallah, and I'm making a full answer. I've actually, again, I've sent this to Sheikh Ali, and I have a full answer from Sheikh Ali on my WhatsApp. He sent it to me with the full references, the ayat and the ahadith. One thing I would say is that the Quran, that jinn possession is proven by the ayat of the Quran, by the hadith of the sunnah, and by ijma' of the Muslims. And this is something we repeat to everyone. There's a lot of misconceptions and it's a very shaitani plot among the, the Muslims that the shaitan spreads this plot, the jinn don't possess people and they have many shubahat and inshallah we're going to bring out a full refutation of these shubahat inshallah with, uh, in support with Sheikh Ali uh, inshallah in terms of bringing a full refutation and a reference for all of the jinn possession mentioned Quran, Sunnah and Ijma' inshallah ta'ala but this will take some time but until then on muhammadtim.com there is a section called notes and this has many many evidences of jinn possession from the Sunnah, the authentic Sunnah, Sahih al-Bukhari and Muslim and others that contain authentic elements that prove the evidence of this and we said the ayah of Ayyub Masseni shaitan bin wa'adab we said uh, the ayah of Surah Al-Baqarah inna layakuluna riba la yaqumuna illa kama yaqumu alladhi yatakhabbatuhu shaitan min al-mas this is also a proof of jinn possession and there are many other clear ahadith from the sunnah that clearly prove this is the case and inshallah we're going to bring out some sort of full detailed response on this topic bi-idhnillahi ta'ala in the near future what does one say to a patient if the patient says they feel worse after Rukia? Like more physical pain, nightmares, uh, you know, violated night because of Rukia or reading or listening to Quran. What I say to them is I say to them like this. I usually give the example of chemotherapy. So you have cancer and you go for chemotherapy. How do you feel after chemotherapy versus how you feel before the chemotherapy? Before the chemotherapy you feel relatively well in good health and afterwards you feel absolutely terrible and you feel like you know, you're going to die, that's because there is a particular kind of medicine that has that particular kind of treatment. Now, Rukia is not like that because it's not a poison like chemotherapy. But at the end of the day, Rukia is something that the jinn will fight against you, the jinn will try to stop you doing it, and so you will sometimes feel worse afterwards. Uh, my daughter, who's 17 years old, has been ill for six years. We've done multiple programs given to us. We did yours, and she got better in many aspects. Is that her waswasa increased to the point where she would pray the same salah multiple times or wudu multiple times okay so what we see here is we we got some of the way but we need to kind of like tweak it and see where we went wrong waswasa has a particular cure for it and if you guys um uh see for example my lectures on bulugh al-maram kitab al-tahara bulugh al-maram they're on the kalima youtube website they have a lot of detail about how to avoid waswasa in salah and tahara and how to stop the shaitan whispering and praying salah multiple times what you saw is the rukia moving to the next phase like what you saw is she's getting better and the shaitan is trying a new trick so you have to have an answer for that particular trick and then you move on and the shaitan will try another trick and then you have to have an answer for that trick and that's how it works so what i would say is get in touch with me and maybe um in some detail maybe by email and what we can do is try and find out where we went wrong and try and tweak it go back on the program 
and see where this waswasa is coming from and try and give her some of the tips to avoid waswasa uh, and how to avoid and how to, and I've got some of those in Bulugh al-Maram my explanation of Bulugh al-Maram how can we be sure that a person afflicted by evil eye alone uh, once the Rukia had done felt the jinn moving um, but after a month symptoms still remained later the Raqi said nothing but the evil eye I don't want to blame the Raqi but for a lot of Raqis they kind of have this principle I'll read on you for a week, and if you don't get better, it's the evil eye. A lot of Rockies do it like that. And I, 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 don't, I don't know anything about this one, you know, I'm not saying anything about this case, but this is my experience with a lot of people who do Rukia. I read on you for a week, if you get better, it was jinn possession, if you don't, it was the evil eye. And I don't think that's a reliable way. At the end of the day, the evil eye can be very severe. Our Sheikh Adil said it can be worse than magic. And uh, I think at the end of the day, you need to deal with the evil eye and you need to keep on going with the Rukia no matter what. Self-Rukia, just keep on going until the symptoms go. And I don't think you need to prove that it's evil eye alone. Because at the end of the day, I, some, I, one brother was telling me about, you know, you have to prove whether it's the evil eye or not. And I said, okay, what would you tell the patient to do if they had the evil eye? He said, well, I would tell them to recite the Quran. I said, what would you tell them to recite? He said, I would tell them to recite, you know, maybe some ayat of the evil eye and al-falaq al-nas al-fatiha. I said, okay. If they've got magic, what would you tell them to do? You say, well, our time to recite some ayahs of the Quran, al-Fatiha, al-Ikhlas, al-Falaq, al-Nas, and something specific to magic. So you're not that far away. Let's be honest. If you get it wrong, you're still in the same ballpark. You're still giving the similar kind of treatment. It's not like, you're, you know, one person you're going to sort of cut off their finger and the other one you're going to leave it. You know, you're doing something which is very, very, very similar. So yes, you would tweak it, but you don't have to tweak it that far. How come the symptoms decrease when a person leaves a certain geographical boundary, such as they're fine in Al-Ain but not in Dubai? Well, I've seen it. I've seen it. Well, I know what you mean, and I've seen it. And I don't know why it happens. It may be sometimes because the magic is actually centered in that place. The ta'weez is actually placed there. And I'm, I'm not saying it is, but I mean it can be. And the further they get away from that ta'weez, the weaker the kind of bond becomes in the magic. But at the end of the day, wallah, Allah knows best. I, I really don't know. I, I see it and I, I would love to know why it happens. But subhanAllah, like I keep saying, we've only been given from knowledge just a tiny little bit. And we just do the best we can with what knowledge we've been given. We have stones or pebbles collected from Muzdalifa during the Hajj and brought them to you accidentally. Can we throw them anywhere? And do we have to throw them or return them to Muzdalifa? No, you can throw them anywhere, inshallah. There's no harm in that, inshallah. The stones are not uh, sacred, inshallah. What about burning? Al-Qasd al-Hindi against the jinn. Wallahi, I have a bit of a strange position on this. I've seen some brothers who I really respect doing it, burning Al-Qasd al-Hindi, but I have a real fear that I see a lot of magicians burning incense and different substances, and so I've taken the position that I don't burn anything. I don't burn incense, I don't burn any sort of thing to remove the jinn, um, I respect the people who burn Kostal Hindi because I think, you know, I understand why they're doing it, but for me, I prefer to put it in drops and put it in the nose. You know, it removes the jinn from the head and it removes the jinn from the, you know, the nasal passage and, and I, I find it, you know, safer because I fear, wallahi, that we start burning incense, we're only one step away from what the magicians are doing and Allah knows best. That's my personal, personal reasoning, personal fear. Um, some days, uh, okay, for neurological disorder, psychiatric disorder, hallucinations such as seeing things and scorpions that nobody else can see. Could this be the jinn uh, or the hidden world? Um, 
and how can people see the jinn, how can kids see the jinn and grown-ups can't. Kids can't see the jinn, but if people are affected by the jinn, the jinn may somehow manipulate their vision so they can see something of the world of the jinn. And we don't say they can see the world of the jinn, but you know, the jinn may, they may see things through the eyes of the jinn. You know, as the jinn possesses their head and puts images in their mind, and they may see certain parts of the, you know, the jinn which we would not already see like children, and that can happen to adults as well. Uh, if a person's having hallucinations, could this be from the jinn? Again, this word could. And we always reply, yes, it, it could be, but it doesn't have to be. So treat it with ruqya, take some steps, be patient, wait to see what it is. If it's going away, alhamdulillah, if it's not, don't be frightened to get some medical treatment for that and see where Allah opens the door for you in that. Um, I'm going as quick as I can. We're past the time, but I'm going to just try and, and, and zoom to the end if I can. Uh, we talked about the assaults of the jinn at night. Does that require ghusl? Wallahi, I don't know. Uqsim billah, I don't know. Yani, this is a... Wallahi, uh, I don't know. This is a very difficult question. I mean, I think that you should... I mean, if it's... If that is happening, I mean, you, you have to make ghusl at the end of the day if you don't have a fatwa otherwise, but I don't know. For frequent sore throat, uh, constipation, is the seven-day program fine or something additional? I recommend two things. I recommend the seven-day program. And uh, I would recommend uh, a couple of things. If you've got a sore throat, uh, a few things from prophetic medicine, honey, and I, I, there are a couple of options. You could drink honey in water or you could take, I mean, I've heard one person say to me that you should take honey raw for a sore throat rather than taking it in water because it passes your throat too quickly, but you could try both. Uh, also, al-qist uh, al-hindi, also in the, for tonsils and tonsil inflammation, the Prophet uh, mentioned al-qist and he said, alaykum bihad al-qist, like use this qist for treating uh, tonsillitis, maybe that could work for a sore throat. And uh, constipation, senna, definitely the senna. The senna is really good. I don't recommend the tablets. I recommend boiling the leaves and taking it like I, like I described in the, in the lecture, inshallah. Uh, okay. What level of iman should a person reciting ruqya be on? Sometimes the, the afflicted person feels weak in iman and his family may also be of bid'ah. So who should recite? Wallahi, yani, if we wait for our iman to be perfect, we'll be waiting until the only day when Allah will complete our iman, yawm al-qiyam. That is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the believers will say, Atmim lana nurana, complete our light for us. And our light will be completed yawm al-qiyamah. Until then the Prophet said, Saddidu wa qaribu, do the right thing and come as near to it as you can. And he said, Istaqimu walan tuhsu, stand firm upon Islam, and do, uh, but you will not be able to do so perfectly. All of us are imperfect, do your best, try to raise your iman, try to avoid the bid'ah and do as much as you possibly can. What about the person who's afflicted by wiswas? How can they do self-ruqya if shaitan is putting doubt in their religion? I have an article on that. If you go to muhammadtim.com forward slash waswasa, I have an article on wiswas in religion. And at the end of the day, the Sahaba experienced this and the Prophet advised what to do and I have some advice on what to do for that. You can read it on my website. And inshallah, the person should do their very, very, very uh, best. So this is a printed question, which is quite detailed, regarding a house. Um, and uh, 
You know, looking at it, I think I would advise, if, if that's okay, if you send it to me by email, because it's another really detailed one with a lot of areas. I don't want to just skim through it and give you like a one-word answer. I'd rather give you a proper answer by email, inshallah, regarding this house. So just send me an email. You can find it on mohammedtim.com forward slash contact. And inshallah, on there, what you find is we, we can go through this. You've printed it out, typed it up. It's really good. But I, I don't want to give you a one-word answer, and we're already over time. I would much rather you know, give you a proper, detailed answer, inshallah, by email. Uh, what is your personal opinion on places that are associated with the jinn, like Wadi Al-Jinn in Medina, Bermuda Triangle? Um, you know, do you think people use magic to gain fame? No doubt people use magic to gain fame, because this is proven in the Quran. They said to Fir'aun, will we have a reward if we are, will we get paid if we basically overcome Musa? Fir'aun said, yes, and you will be from those who are near to me. You'll be getting fame and status from being near to me um, and uh, getting near to me. If I could ask the Kalima volunteers from now on to collect the, the questions and just keep them with you, inshallah, we'll answer them later because I think this will finish our time already, inshallah. Um, as for magic for fame, yes. As for Wadi al-Jinn and the Bermuda Triangle, Wallah, Allah Azza wa knows best. We don't speak about, about things without knowledge we don't know about, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows better about them. And this, you know, knowledge is something that is with Allah Azza wa and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows better. And I, you know, I don't, I don't try not to speak about things I don't know about. Can magic done on one person affect another person or other people? Yeah, I think, I think it can. I think it can, it can kind of creep. You know, remember when we talked about the fog of sihr? That fog can kind of spread out to everyone in the family. So if, you're, if you've got your, sort of, your spouse is affected, definitely you feel the kind of pain of that. Even though you're not affected yourself as badly as, let's say, maybe they are, but you start to feel, you know, like you start to kind of feel the, sort of some of the effect of that. But I'm kind of against them jumping from one person to another. It's very rare that they jump from one person to another. What Islamic ruling about having a pet? Does a domestic animal repel the evil eye? No, definitely a domestic animal does not repel the evil eye. As regards a pet, there are many different rulings depending on the pet. So you should refer to them, inshallah, on one of the you know, well-known websites for fatawa, inshallah, regarding the particular pet that you would like to keep. If a person has more than one problem, like a medical, psychological, or whatever, can a person read one ruqya with the intention of both? Yes, you can read a ruqya for shifa, inshallah. Uh, Bismillah. So, if a person has some haram in his wealth, is his dua not accepted or less likely to be accepted? We don't say not accepted, but we say that there's a danger of it not being accepted. Because you know that the hadith, dusty and disheveled, he raises his hands to the sky, he says, Ya Rabbi, Ya Rabbi, but his, clothing, his food is haram, and his drink is haram, and his clothing is haram, and he's been nourished on haram, so how will Allah answer him? That's definitely a warning that there is a very serious danger that a person who has haram wealth will not have their dua answered. But we don't, we don't have jazm, we don't say for certain in every person's case, your dua will never be answered because you have this. But what we say is that this is a person should fear Allah with regard to this and be scared. My one-year-old sleeps for less than 30 minutes at a time during the night, keeps crying. The elder child too had the same problem until three years old. 
Uh, mother of the child is devastated due to this and her prayers and life scheduled upside down. You know, I think this is a beautiful case for Rukia. Beautiful. We're not saying the child has a Rukia problem. It could be, I mean, I had, uh, I think, you know, my nephew also had this kind of problem. Um, and, you know, it, it was, it did clear up. It was seemed to be a medical issue. But at the end of the day, you know, Rukia is the most beautiful cure you can use for your kids. Spend that time to read Quran over them, put the oil on them, try the Rukia bath for them, you know, just to settle them down. And experiment with Rukia and the different things we talked about, passive Rukia, reading on them till they go to sleep, and see what happens, inshallah, and how things improve with regard to the children. And I believe if you do that with full Iman, inshallah, your situation will improve massively, ta'ala. And, you know, if it was going to be a problem, I would kind of edge towards the evil eye, because, you know, a lot of children get the evil eye, so definitely read over them. And other du'as to protect them and keep them safe, inshallah. And uh, do their adhkar for them before they go to bed. Like, so, you know, just like, just a few words, you know, just ayat al-kursi or al-falaq, al-nas, blow over them, wipe over them, inshallah. Put them to sleep, inshallah. Remove the house from any toys. Like we talked about in the segment on children, inshallah. And I think, inshallah, you'll see a much better improvement from them. And if you need further help, you can send me an email and I'll sort of, after you've done that, and I'll try and, and give you further tips, inshallah. Is the Qur'an a cure for everything? Can it be used for treating cancer, madness, etc.? There is no difference of opinion that the Qur'an is a cure for everything. And that doesn't mean when you have cancer that you don't go to the doctor and you just read the Qur'an. But that means that because the Prophet ﷺ said, use medicine. Uh, I think he said, Use medicine and don't use medicine that is haram. So you go, you use your medicine, you take your treatment, and you use ruqya, inshallah. Because the Quran is a cure for every single illness. And the Sheikh Ali in his book, Al-Istishfa, mentions this in so much detail with a lot of evidence. The Sahaba cured or, or treat a man for madness, not jinn possession, regular insanity, using the Quran, and he was cured by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If sihr is sprayed on the door of a house, and the doors become deteriorated, kids go in and out of the house and get angry. How do we clean the sihr from the door? Um, that's difficult, that's a difficult one to ask about because I'm always a bit suspicious about these things of sihr being sprayed on things and given to people to eat. I'm not saying it can't happen, but it's not very common. But if something, you know, sort of bad has been sprayed, some water from a magician, and it's making the door like deteriorate, and how you clean it? Wallahi, yani, I... Um, I would definitely do the rukia for the house. And I don't know, would I, would I wash the door with rukia water? I, I don't know. Yani I, I find myself really reluctant to say that because I said to you, I don't like spraying the water on the walls and in the house. But maybe if you have a specific reason to believe, like you saw a magician come and throw something on the wall and it's causing you a real problem, in that case, I would kind of be okay with you putting some rukia water over it, inshallah. Um, not that I think it should be done generally, but if you really know that someone came and you know this magician knocked on the door and sort of threw something at your door and then everything bad happened, you know, I, I probably would put Rukia water on it and Allah knows best. But definitely the house stuff, Surah Al-Baqarah and all the rest. Uh, how can an evil jinn recite Quran? And how come a person manages to pray while... Uh, something is still on while uh, wearing it. Uh, okay, I kind of got a little bit confused with that one. But um, how can an evil jinn recite the Qur'an? 
Well, I have no idea. Uh, maybe it's a Muslim jinn, maybe it's an evil jinn, maybe it's one of those jinn, you know, but at the end of the day, I mean, if you just want to apply to, to, um, to human beings, I mean, a kafir can recite the Quran, right? You know, I mean, not very common, but you could get a, a non-Muslim who recites words from the Quran, you know, I don't know the end of the day, but I do know that sometimes the jinn recite Quran and you shouldn't pay attention to it. What is the authenticity level of stories about children conceived between the jinn and humans and the relation of, you know, indigo children about the jinn? Um, I think it's, I don't know, I, I, I know it's, it seems to be possible for intimacy to occur between the jinn and human beings, but whether any children can come from that, I don't know the answer to that. There are some words of that regard, I think there are some statements I recall something in one of Ibn Taymiyyah's essays, but you know, at the end of the day, this is beyond what I know, and I think it's pretty much beyond what anybody knows, really. And you know, at the end of the day, you have to leave the ghaib to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I think that's beyond what people know. And I don't think there's any evidence that certain children are, you know, byproducts of sort of jinn-human mix, and then they have these superpowers, or, you know, I, I don't think so. I think at the end of the day, what we say is that, you know, it, Jinn can certainly have some sort of intimacy with human beings. I think we've seen a lot of evidence for that, and there's evidence for that in the, in the Quran. Uh, but I, I don't think that there's very strong evidence to say that there are some children who are byproducts of that. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. That is from the knowledge that remains with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. And I keep saying, Subhanallah, we've only been given such a little amount of knowledge. Wallahi, is so small. I want to just conclude three minutes, inshallah, of your time, four minutes of your time, just to conclude, inshallah, today's session. Um, I wanted, or maybe I should, maybe I have this one. Uh, yeah, unable to get a job for two years. That was definitely, we talked about financial problems, inshallah. Uh, is it magic, evil eye, or a curse on the family? You should know by now not to ask me by paper, because you should know that I don't have ilm al-ghaib. I don't know whether it's magic or a curse. But all I can tell you is, that to do the treatment that I've discussed in the financial segment. Uh, we're particular about prayers and adhkar. So was Ayyub. Uh, and sisters perform Rukia, attending your level one. We feel better, but our problems are still there. Be patient, ta'ala. And you're doing really, really, really well. Be patient, keep going, keep having sabr, inshallah. And again, you know, look at the other causes of risk being increased, like I said. Um, paternal grandparents divorced in later life. Um, and also other people in the family as well, younger sister and father divorced twice, struggling with proposals, and the boy's family suddenly call off, uh, financial problems, etc. Yeah, I, I do think that side of things is very close to it being a problem of magic, and Allah knows best. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't confirm that without Rukia, but I would say that, you know, when you get like these cases of constant divorces happening all the way through the family, and uh, loads of problems happening generation to generation, and it repeating siblings all getting divorced, and then you have like problems of financial issues, and then you have, uh, you know, weird, strange things happening in the family. I think all of that together would give me a working theory of magic, but at the end of the day, we don't know. And that's going to take sabr. You keep going, you be patient, like Ayyub was, you turn to Allah and you bear in mind what we said throughout this course. So, um, I apologize for the really quick answers. I just do my best with all the questions, inshallah. And those who haven't had their questions answered, inshallah, we will collate them for the next workshop or for a Friday night reflections, inshallah, if that's what we end up doing. Uh, there are a couple of things I'd like to say. First of all, um, this course was intended to build upon what we did in level one. Now, I know the video for level one on YouTube is not very good. 
it's bro very much broken up. But inshallah, I'm told the guys at Kelima, they did have a professional cameraman. I'm hoping they'll be able to get the cameraman's copy of the video and upload that. Even if not, just be patient with it and try and follow the videos in order. Start with Abu Ibrahim, then with the West London Islamic Center, then with uh, you know the Quran is a cure, then with Kalima Workshop 1, and try and catch Kalima Workshop 2 and revise. And really build up your knowledge. You know, at the end of the day, I don't want to just you know, have you guys listen to me and think, well, he said some good things and go. I want you guys to develop a real expertise and to become you know, people who Allah makes you a imma, guidance, like a, an imam, like a, a guidance for other people, like a, someone that the other people follow. Make us for the pious an example, like an imam or a leader for the pious. That's what we want you guys to, to be able to do. I would clearly say that I have only a limited amount of knowledge and as does everybody. And at the end of the day, I do my best to tell you what I know according to what I've found out. And I'm sure that the things I'm ignorant about on this topic are far, far more than the things that I know about. And it's, you know, every day, every week is a discovery for me, something new. Do your own research, read, listen to other people, accept the Dalil wherever you find it and develop yourself in your practice. And most importantly, try and do Rukia. Because, the, you know, we, we have so many people in desperate situations. And I, you know, you know that I, I, it's not, I'm not really, with, it's not within my, my remit, you know, sort of work and, and the Islamic Center to do Rukia. Uh, so we need a lot of people to help out. So, you know, find it in yourself. Be brave. Come and get a case. And inshallah, you know, take that case on and do your best with it. And learn like I learned. And, and inshallah, better than I learned. And I think there's so much research still to be done. I haven't even started transcribing the books of Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Al-Qayyim, the books of, you know, the, the ahadith about Ruqiyah. I've only transcribed a few of them. There is so, so much research and so much work to be done on this topic. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's so much left to be done. So we want to inspire you guys to go further than this uh, and to be better than, you know, to, to know more about it than me and to, to be better than I have been in it. And, you know, to work together to kind of push our level higher. And, you know, I will keep on doing Rukia workshops. And I, I guess in some ways, inshallah, they'll keep on getting smaller because the number of people who've kind of attended the whole thing will just, you know, just kind of focus into a group. And maybe next time we might do something on dreams. We might also do something a bit more specific, like a half day where we take like 25 brothers and sisters or whatever and really focus on detailed, detailed questions of people who want to do it for other people. Because a lot of you came because you have problems yourself, and I, and I respect that, I understand that. But at the same time, I want people who are not just willing to look at their own family, but willing to look beyond that and help other people and really, you know, cooperate upon birr and taqwa, spread the message, help people to understand. If anything I've said today was right, then that was nothing more than the blessing of Allah and His Father, and it was not something that I deserved. And if anything I said today was wrong, then you understand a lot of what I spoke about was ijtihad, a lot of it was experience. And, you know, I probably got some things mixed up in the beginning about the history of how I started Rukia, because, you know, it's been so many times, so many things happened. But, you know, whatever I said that's wrong is only from my nafs and only from the shaitan. And at the end of the day, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to cure those people who are sick, and we ask Allah because he is a shafi and there is no cure except for his cure and it's a cure that leaves no sickness to cure those people and to bless us with beneficial knowledge and give us the ability to act upon it. وَآخِرُ دَعْوَانَا أَنِ الْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ وَالصَّلَاةُ وَالسَّلَامُ عَلَىٰ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ نَبِيِّنَا مُحَمَّدٍ
وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين